This is firefighter Raphael Poirier for Firehouse Subs, introducing the new Firehouse Pub Steak Sub with savory steak, crispy fried onions, and our rich Belgian beer cheese sauce. On tap for a limited time. Order yours at firehousesubs.com today. Remember, a portion of every sub you buy helps provide life-saving equipment for first responders. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Limited time only, plus tax. Participating locations. Firehouse Subs will donate a minimum of $1 million in 2018 to the Firehouse Subs Public Safety Foundation by donating 0.13% of every purchase. Liquid Lunch. It's me, Hugh, and uh, it's Wednesday, November 6, 2013. We're starting a little bit early today because we got a really fantastic show. I'm just going to tell you who's coming on the show first of all uh, before we, we get started with Tamara, who's sitting with me here. Uh, Dr. Eric Pearl's going to be on the show today. We're going to be talking about uh, reconnective healing and all that kind of stuff. And you know about Eric, right? Uh, absolutely. Tamara. Meredith Shaw is also going to be here. She's a singer-songwriter. And we're going to be talking about her. Uh, we've got a couple of videos we're going to play from her. Looking forward to that. Kevin Annett is visiting from Vancouver. You know, he's been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. Cool. And we're going to be talking about the residential schools and all that kind of stuff. Sean Dal Dalton will also be here talking about uh, Quebec's Charter of Values. But we're going to start the show off. And Rose is going to be my co-host. She might even be in the building right now. I'm not sure. But... Uh, um, but uh, Tamara's here tomorrow. Welcome I'm to the now. show. Mm -hmm. And great to have you on. Thank you very much. I'm always delighted to be invited. Well, okay, so let's just settle in it and have a good discussion here because uh, we're talking about rebirthing today, and that's what you do, right? Well, yes, I do. And you know, yesterday somebody called me and said, you know, I've been really put off by the name rebirthing. It has, you know, sort of like born again Christian connotations. Yeah. Well, the idea of rebirthing is that you are reborn to yourself in a, in a new way. The possibility of coming, being new and fresh with a lot of the past being over is really valuable. So it's been called by many names, rebirthing, transformational breath work, spiritual breathing, energy breathing, you name it. It's had other names, but the work is really basically still the same. Okay, so now I'm going to say, because yesterday I was over at your place and I had a rebirthing session. Not my first one, I think my third one, right? Third, yeah. And I was thinking though, and I've been kind of processing that for like 24 hours now, and uh, one of the things I was thinking about was that it's really not rebirthing. I was thinking like, I don't know if it, like, you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I was thinking it's... It's really a breathing thing, and, and I don't know if it, it is, is a, a, breathing a rebirthing, like I'm not sure why it's called rebirthing. How does your body feel? Today? Yeah. You mean after my session yesterday? Yeah. <clears throat> my body, in fact, all through the night, uh, it, it's been feeling, uh, my, bo my body physically has been feeling really good. I feel like I'm, well, I... Can I tell you? Because of course I, you I tell me. I really want you to tell the truth. Okay. So, but I'm going to mix it up a little bit because I was also getting ready for uh, Dr. Eric Pearl, who's coming on the show later, and I was reading his books. Right. right. So throughout the night, you had a lot going on. I felt like I was um, 
clearing a lot of phlegm and stuff from my okay. system. Okay. And I always, through the night in my sort of dream, half dream, in and out. dream state, yeah. I was thinking, because, you know, uh, finding a little about Eric Pearl and, and that the, this uh, healing, right, where it feels like there's actually people working on you, I was sort of thinking, gee, are people working on me? Through the, throughout the night, you know, trying to heal as well, and, and it, how is that related to the rebirthing, rebirthing session that I did with you yesterday? Well, a lot of it depends, you know, techniques are techniques, and anybody can apply techniques, mm -hmm. but what really is valuable is the person who is there facilitating. If people have done their own work, if mm -hmm. they're pretty clear, they can pull in energy that is really powerful. Often I've been accused of... Um, I, I said to somebody, I just went to get you a little cup of tea. And they said, oh, no, I could feel you in the room. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> because there are many things that are at work that we see and that we don't see. Having said that, this is a very practical way of accessing things that are unresolved in all the systems. Okay? Mm -hmm. Bringing it up it's like peroxide to a wound. Put peroxide on, bubbles it up, and leave something clean and clear when it's finished. Now, you've had three sessions, yes. okay? <clears throat> but they haven't been ongoing, as I encourage people to do, once a week, if they, people can't manage it, once every two weeks. And what happens is, so you clear some stuff and then it builds again and you clear some stuff and it builds again. But if you do ongoing work, mm -hmm. it really gets to the, root, to the root of what's going on, not just a little tickle. I gave you the analogy of what happens when you go through any process of healing, but particularly this one, is it's like a beaker of water and you've got sediment at the bottom. Yeah. And what you do is you turn on the tap and the sediment starts to get activated, like you get activated when you're doing the breathing work. And so you have a couple of choices, but not really. You can choose to withdraw and say, oh, no, you know, I've let a few things go. Or you can continue under the tap with the water until the beaker of water is clear. And that's what one hopes will occur with rebirthing. Oops, Rose is just coming into the Come on, Rose, studio. we're waiting Come on, for Rose. you. Come on, Rose, you can come on over here. I got water for you over here. We had to start early. <laughs> okay. okay. <coughs> so, so, so that's really what it is. It's yeah. basically people making a decision dedicated to their transformation dedicated to moving through some of the things that, that affect all of us, uh, most people, feelings of safety, of fear, of not being wanted, of being the wrong person. Hi. And so all of these things, all of these things affect us. Okay. Oh, where's my, where's my poppy? What? My poppy fell off. My poppy fell off. I know. Oops. Okay. Okay. Are you sure that wasn't mine? No. See, there's Rose. We got to adjust the cameras, but there she is. Okay. So we're talking. Well, let me move closer. No, no. You stay where you are, Tamara. You We got. We got all set up for you. So we're talking about rebirthing with Tamara here. Breathwork. Have you ever done it? 
No, but you and I have run into each other a few times. We have? Where? Yes, yes. Uh, and uh, there was going to be a session once, but it, then it didn't It Didn't, take didn't happen. Oh, okay. Well, I just had one yesterday. Oh, you did? Yes, I did. My and third session. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Now well, look I at these. I missed, uh... You haven't missed much. Okay. I haven't missed much. Yeah. So the idea is that we all have stuff. I mean, the, one of the first things I say to people when they come to see me is, why have you come? Mm -hmm. And then we find out what some of the patterns are that they're running. You know, um, what's the worst thought you have about yourself? Mm -hmm. What was your relationship like with your parents? Mm -hmm. What was your birth scenario like because birth has a very significant part in the, the lives that we lead well i'm getting a call tomorrow. oh it sounded like my phone <laughs> yeah. oh, i'm thinking oh my god okay um, so you know uh, we uh, the way you're born has a direct rela uh, relationship to relationships that you have in your life for example somebody who might have been a forceps delivery People are, you know, and they're in relationship, sometimes they have to be cajoled, encouraged, moved into the relationship because that's, that was their first experience of being in the physical body outside of the womb. That's fascinating. Yeah, it is. What if somebody doesn't know the circumstances of their birth? Good question. Um, sometimes um, they get it in rebirthing sessions. They go deep enough and I guide them into having a look at what might have happened. It happens a lot with people who are adopted. Mm -hmm. And I have an extremely large number, a, a disproportionately large number of adopted clients mm -hmm. because they want to know, you know, where did I come from? I had loving parents, my adopted parents, but somehow they want to know the big picture. And rebirthing deals with a lot of big pictures. Birth scenario, parental disapproval syndrome, you know, specific biggies, other lifetimes come into it. But you know what? If any other lifetime was more important than this one, you'd still be there. Okay? And all of us, virtually without exception, have something called a death urge. How many people have said to you, well, death and taxes are inevitable, so you believe that. Well, my philosophy is that life is inevitable. As immortals, we know that life is inevitable. Oh, here we go with the immortality. I didn't bring it up. Yes, you did. Okay, well, forget You brought it, it up. I'm well, that's just the rings. Part, that's, just part, <laughs> that's just part of the whole scenario. There's also, you know, there's also religious trauma, school trauma, religious trauma. <clears throat> Have a look at what... The, uh, you know, some people tell their children, you see the guy up on the cross there? You misbehave and we'll hammer you, baby. Mm -hmm. I mean, people grow up with a lot of fear. So what we want to do is to get people to be more of who they truly are. With A lot of these things vibrated out of the system. Mm -hmm. And the way it's done is through the breath. Mm -hmm. The Tomo breath and awareness. Uh, tomorrow, can I backtrack on something sure. you just said a, mi a moment sure, ago? Sure, sure which was that if any past life was more relevant than the one we're in now, we would still be there. Yeah. Uh, does, is the implication there then that when any life ceases to be relevant to our soul growth, we then pass on from it? Yeah. That's so my why opinion. do people That's carry forward? Why do people carry forward then? They might have completed one piece 
of the scenario, mm -hmm. but there are other pieces to deal with. Or they may have created other things in that lifetime. You know, we could even think about parallel existences. Yeah. There's so much to think about. It's, mm -hmm. it's quite interesting. Yeah. 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 And I missed uh, the beginning, and I, I it wasn't much. Really? All right. So I did. Uh, did you go through the explanation of what are the rebirthing, rebirthing processes about? No, I didn't, but oh. I will. Oh, okay. Um, rebirthing. When people come to see me, I've given them a questionnaire before they come. Yes. Because they, there's no need for them to sit and fill out forms and this, that, and the other. And they need to think about it. Yeah. They need to think about, you know, what was what was three things that I liked about my mom, mm -hmm. three things that I disliked about my mom. Some people can't even write mm -hmm. what they disliked or can't even write what they did like. Mm -hmm. And then when they come to see me, we go through this to have a look at what, what's running them. Mm -hmm. And I'm very highly intuitive, so sometimes I get stuff that other people may mm -hmm. have missed or they may have missed. I had a client not too long ago who was sent away from his parents um, for two and a half years to grandparents. Mm -hmm. For some reason, the parents couldn't take care of him, and there was another sibling born. And after two and a half years, when he was about five and a half, and the mother came, uh, the mother came to, to pick him up, because they lived in different places in Europe. Um, he didn't know his mother. And he has great difficulty trusting relationships. Mm -hmm. You know, he gets into lovely relationships with people they really, you know, he really likes a lot. And yet he can't go deeply of himself into the relationship. Mm -hmm. I said to him, well, I can understand that. The first woman in your life that you were so intimate with was your mother. Mm -hmm. And she betrayed you. She abandoned you. Mm -hmm. And it was a huge peace that he was able to breathe through. And when he wrote up a little report on, on how his session went, he said, my relationship with my parents has changed dramatically because of the awareness. So are the key words that you just said in that sentence he was able to breathe through? <clears throat> because... In, so when we've gone through the patterns, what happens is that people lie down mm -hmm. and I guide them through conscious connected breathing. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, nose, mouth breathing depends on where I think that they're at. And eventually what happens is the body, the cells, the energy of the body starts to vibrate, mm -hmm. you know, quite, quite mysteriously. And what happens is it's almost like an orgasm. It builds, it peaks, and then it integrates. Mm -hmm. And what happens is that somehow the thought that was prevailing gets softer or it, it, it evaporates and you have a new awareness. You come to the situation very differently. And so sometimes kind of people have memories. out of your system? Yes. So it's gone. It, it, Ask it, him. It's not only... Uh, uh, it doesn't seem to disappear. It's just not at just that a time. cognitive it's, thing. Oh. It's not just a cognitive thing. It's actually, it can be physical. Sometimes just identifying it mm -hmm. uh, can, can move it. And but would, would the person be able to call it back in? 
if they choose to. If, if they're, you know, attached. If they choose to. I work with the affirmation process. Mm -hmm. You know, an affirmation um, is, um, affirmations work. Mm -hmm. Because you learn to identify what it is about a particular situation and you imbue the positive opposite mm -hmm. uh, to the negative thought to create a desired result. Mm -hmm. For example, I, I, let's say um, one of my main uh, thoughts was I was not wanted. Mm -hmm. Okay? I only discovered that uh, when I was well into the rebirthing process, many years later, and we'll go back to the affirmation, but I just want to tell you how I identified it, was um, my partner at the time was going back to Ottawa. Mm -hmm. And um, as he was driving down the, down the street, I got this terrible feeling that I was unwanted. That was not true of the relationship, but I just got that feeling. Mm -hmm. And I, I went home and I cried and for no apparent reason, and I started to rebirth myself and it eased the feeling. Sometime later when I visited with my sister in England, I said to her, do you think mom and dad didn't want a third child? She says, you know, I've never said anything, but mom said that when dad heard that mom was pregnant for a third time, he was very upset. He didn't want a third child, but within no time at all, you know, everything was fine. But I got that thought, mm -hmm. and it had been residing in my system all that time. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, mm -hmm. now, so if a person writes, I am not, let's say my thought was that I was not wanted. Mm -hmm. I would make the affirmation, I am wanted, and then I would have a response column because sometime, somewhere in the subconscious there are some thoughts about it. If I was really wanted, how come I have this feeling? Yes. And then you write the affirmation again. I am wanted. And so you keep doing it until there's a clearing. Mm -hmm. And you don't just do it one time. You do it for seven days. And it produces a very strong desired effect. Seven days in terms of... Uh Seven consecutive daily seven sessions consecutive with you? Seven okay. No, no, not seven or consecutive home, days. It's homework. Okay. It's an assignment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you do that with your parents. Mm -hmm. You know, I, Rose, forgive my father completely. Mm -hmm. And the response might be nothing to forgive. Mm -hmm. And then I, Rose, forgive my father completely. Mm -hmm. And you say, he was a real shit. Oh, sorry. He was a real mm hmm and so you start dumping, that's like the trash can of the mind. Mm -hmm. And eventually, what goes on is the affirmation reinstates itself into your system where any, anything that you might have had with your father seems to have dissolved. And would that automatically then impact one's behavior patterns because often on the you know the physical plane is a lot denser than the other planes and there's a little bit of a lag effect so does uh, does one's uh, behavior change uh, instantly and if not then is there a risk of calling that old behavior you know calling back that old issue okay it it's in? a good question um, I don't know it depends on you mm -hmm. some people are willing to really surrender and let go and others are so used to calling back the negative aspect, so they just have to do it for longer. 
Does that does that answer your question? Well, I was wondering if the okay, if somebody is more aware, they would have an easier time of letting go. They and might be. It depends on each person. Each person right. is so unique in terms of the things that influence them. Okay, but the process, going through the process of uh, rebirthing and the seven-day affirmation process, repeating that for seven days, does it ease that? Yes, it or does. At least there's a potential. Yes, it does. Okay. And there's always, there's always the potential for going back. Mm -hmm. But you, my experience is you don't go back quite at that level okay. if you go back. And you catch your thoughts. Mm -hmm. The whole idea is awareness. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, you want to shift consciousness, you become more aware right. of everything. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you. Okay, now, Tamara, we don't have that much time left. Apparently not. <laughs> but but I, want you to, I want you to share with Rose some of the things that you did feel that were positive. Oh, that would be wonderful. You mean yesterday yes. and today? Yes. <laughs> yes, that would be lovely. Well, it was, uh, it was uh, you know, I told somebody just last week, I said, you know, I've tried a lot of different modalities or whatever and not much has an effect on me <laughs> okay it, that's honest except for yeah. rebirthing I said I said the rebirthing has some kind of an effect some kind profound well I mean it was uh, definitely an experience a little bit of a trip to another dimension or another reality or another just a, a different experience yesterday especially because I sort of lost like I sort of, you know, kind of lost, not consciousness, but we I, did I went into, land. and then you, 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 you rang those bells in my ears and it like, it totally changed my state instantly. Brought and you back into your body. But I, that's not, that's not a re rebirthing thing. It was just. Well, whatever it was, it was a profound experience, uh, uh, you know, certainly different. And, uh, when I, you know, when I was finished, I felt very, um, kind of uh, happy <laughs> and um, could you go for that on an ongoing basis yeah for sure oh, okay just checking and, uh, <laughs> and so physically I've been kind of like I said uh, just feeling interesting in terms of my clearing phlegm and stuff like that it's just something's going oh. on I'm not so sure phlegm is congestion mm -hmm. yeah so stuck energy maybe something mm. so that's how I feel and um, it was a worthwhile experience uh, yesterday. Now, just, but we, let's briefly, I, I, I know you don't want to get into the immortality thing, but you went to Iceland with Sandra Ray. I just, did. Can you just tell us briefly about yeah, that sure. whole experience? Sandra Ray um, and, and her email is Immortal Ray, which is wonderful. That's, uh, she has something called Liberation Breathing, another name for breath work. But she wants to help people liberate themselves from physical density okay right. so for five out of the seven days we did water rebirthing mm -hmm. with affirmation process mm -hmm. it was powerful mm -hmm. we had to identify 10 of our most negative thoughts mm -hmm. and then reverse them with positive affirmation and we did that while uh, as part of the water rebirthing it was a wonderful powerful experience and I recommend anybody who's really interested in going the next step comes with me next year because I sure will go again it was wonderful 
Are you doing it in Iceland again? Absolutely. In the thermal, in the thermal yeah. waters, yeah. Oh, it was wonderful. And you know the thing that I noticed when I stepped off the plane, other than the fumes from the aeroplanes, was fresh air. Mm -hmm. It was fresh. The air was pristine. Mm. And um, the whole country is run by geothermal energy. Mm -hmm. mm. Beautiful waterfalls. Mm -hmm. and, and we saw tectonic plates. And uh, it was just, it was a, a real trip of a lifetime. Wow. Yeah. Sorry, when you say, uh, I, I know we're wrapping up, but I, when you, you said that was about uh, liberating oneself from physical density. What do you mean by that? Not, not that is <laughs> a big question, that and we'll, we'll deal with it. We can deal with that another time, because yeah. I can feel uh, he's anxious. Yes. I, I, it, it's a big I, topic. That's because of my rebirthing session. I'm assuming you're meeting not vibrating out of this dimension. <laughs> not necessarily, but with the potential of that. Well, okay. That's James Redfield would think otherwise, perhaps. Well, it's okay. I'm reading his book. I know you had his oh, book. I know. I'm, I'm well, enjoying it very much. Huh? Okay. Um, yeah. One other thing. Uh, oh, yeah. Wait, you know, you, um, I just you, wanted to mention I that know. there is a workshop this weekend. Of course. Ah. We need to know about that. So, uh, Sunday, November the 10th, um, I'm doing a one-day workshop called Re-Elationships, which means oh. that most of the time we get denser and denser and denser, and we forget about our childlike elation. Mm -hmm. how to get excited about life, what's beautiful, what's wonderful, mm -hmm. and that keeps our energy high. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm doing. And what I'd like to offer your viewers is that if they call me, and will you put the number on the, on the screen? Yes. Yes, okay. Um, that I'll give them the early registration fee, which is $199 instead of $250. Okay. Okay? Great. Good. And there are a few spaces left which I'd be happy to fill. All right. And, okay, before you go, so, and where, so they have to phone you to register they for this? They have to pre-register. Do they have to do that by phone? Or is there could, an uh, email? Well, there's an email address, which is breathe, B-R-E-A-T-H-E, -E, at tamarapen.com. Oh. It's very simple. All right. Is it an all-day workshop? It's an all-day workshop from 10 till 5. Okay. And then go to your website too, tomorrowpen.com. Yes. And my website is tomorrowpen.com. All right, tomorrow. Thank okay, you well, very thanks much. Thanks for doing this. Lovely. Okay, so. Thank you, Rose. No, we got a really exciting show. You know, we so, do. Yeah, yeah. So we already. I already named all the guests, so just stay tuned, people. Um, but yes, you uh, did. we've got Dr. Eric Pearl uh, coming on next, and, and I've got a little video here. Uh, first of all, uh, Dr. Pearl is the author of What is Connective Reconnective Healing, mm -hmm. and uh, I've got a, a video here that's going to uh, kind of give people an introduction to it if they don't already know about it. And we're going to be back in a couple of minutes with Dr. Pearl. Thank as you. As the lunch continues. Thank you, Tamara. Thank you very much.
It's a way to access healing without having to learn any steps. This is more than energy healing. Reconnective healing is a new form of healing here on the planet for what the researchers think is the very first time. So when we help others with their healings, we become better ourselves. Because this is us vibrating at a level of light. According to the researchers, when we step into this new bandwidth of frequency that science calls reconnective healing spectrum or continuum, we move into a healing spectrum that has not been here on the planet, has not been seen here on the planet. Here's the amazing truth. We've taught more than 60,000 people. 60,000 people in more than 60 different countries how to do this work. Every single person at every single seminar has walked out with the ability to do this work. This isn't about faith or believing in this. This is about seeing it for yourself. What we talk about is reconnected healing is that it's not just about energy healing. It's about a communication and a transmission of energy, light, and information. The gift of this more comprehensive spectrum of healing is that it allows us to fairly instantaneously transcend all of our energy healing techniques and bring about greater, more comprehensive healings that tend to last the lifetime of the person. What if our DNA is our software? What we're doing is we're facilitating a human software upgrade. A human upgrade. If I just get myself out of the way, I will, I will be what I'm meant to be. What I really loved about it is also the, is what also attracted me to it. The straightforwardness and the simplicity of the process. And that is truly what it turned out to be, which is always a nice surprise. Side deep enough that we're all more than just humans. We can all be healers, just like Dr. Pro. You could feel something through your hands when you um, suck your hands round and round. What do you feel like? It feels like a tingly sparkles and stuff. We're here to be the light that inspires the light in each person who comes along. We just have to stop looking out so we can find what's within to access our next level of expansion. Time is now. Come home. It's time to come home. Dr. Eric Pearl, who's in Toronto, um, uh, giving a seminar this weekend. And uh, Dr. Pearl, great to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So let's celebrate because tomorrow I brought us some non-alcoholic um, booze. I know you're a little disappointed. Eric. Well, you know, um, <laughs> you have to have spirits to be spiritual. 
<laughs> you know, I like that. Yeah, I saw your. Uh, I was watching some of your videos, and you were talking about you know, uh, some people being vegetarian, and you were saying you don't need to be a vegetarian. It's something about you. Li you like your vegetables in the compact form of a cow. Yes, I do. I do yeah. enjoy that. Which is, uh, you know. I don't know. Some that's people might right. think they're that's denser. irreverent or something like that, but it's some um, people might think that they are experts in diet and nutrition as well, and those people might consider it irreverent. Yeah. The point is, is we are here to experience life. Yeah. We're here to experience life. So if we want to experience life as a vegetarian, if we want to experience life as um, someone who lives in a macrobiotic diet or living food only, or if you want to experience life according to the natural design of your teeth and your intestinal tract and therefore you eat meat, they're all choices. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All choices. Okay. I agree. And I actually think it's more important how you eat than what you eat. If, and by that I mean, uh, I don't mean chewing well, I, although that's important. I mean more uh, being grateful to all the, the kingdoms that are involved, the mineral kingdom, the plant kingdom, the animal kingdom. They've all given something to you to, to sustain you. you know about the kingdom of God? I think and that the should yes, handle it. Yes, 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 and the king, yes. Call it God, call it love, call it the intelligence of the universe. Yes. I don't think God cares whether you refer to God as Helen. We as human beings, however, do like to argue over that one, don't we? Yeah. Okay, so, so let's talk a little bit about, uh, we saw the video, or we will, in the edited version about what reconnecting <laughs> healing is. But uh, maybe you can just give us a little bit of an introduction uh, to it now. Sure, reconnective healing is a new level of healing, or a level of healing that's newly available to us here on Earth, at least according to a lot of the findings of the scientists and the researchers who are studying it. It appears to allow us to reconnect with our original fullness, thank you, that we tend to experience. That's often reported for people who have life after death experiences. So we experience it in between our lifetimes when we return to that light that we all come from, that we all return to. And it allows us to bring that fullness of experience back here to actually manifest it while we're here in physical form. So the results of which often tend to be healings that unlike energy healing, which is all we've had up until now, tend to be fairly instantaneous in their results and the results tend to be life lasting. And they feel that has to do with a new level of light that they measure that comes through this bandwidth that takes us beyond the energy subsets we've had here because we've been existing in a four-dimensional right. world of height, width, depth, and time. And um, in quantum physics, they often illustrate this as a bubble. So if you imagine our existence in a tiny little balloon or a bubble in this huge, vast, endless, multi-dimensional universe, then everything inside of our bubble of existence has been, as we've always been taught, energy. Everything's been energy. And the bubble of the balloon itself has been height, width, depth, and time. And when we've been focusing in with our energy healing techniques, Reiki, Jirai, Jinshin, Shigong, Mahjong, Beijing, Alpha, Beta, Delta, Gamma, XYZ, 1, 2, 3, EFG, all those things have been different subsets, different portions of the energy within the balloon. Mm -hmm. So our first gift to ourselves, which is not new, which we've always had access to if, we, if we've allowed ourselves to listen to the masters, mm 
is to let go of the training wheels of technique, to realize that we can either master the bicycle with training wheels or master the bicycle itself. We can either master our little energy healing techniques or we can transcend the technique because the true gift of the technique comes only once we transcend it. And instead of accessing subsets of energy, access the entirety of the energy. Once we allow ourselves to do that, and only after we allow ourselves to transcend the techniques itself, we have a secondary level of gift that comes that is of this time today, not mm -hmm. here before, at least, again, according to what most of the theorists and the researchers believe. And that is due to the fact that time is expanding. Time is moving faster in all directions at once, so it's opening and expanding. Since time is a part of our bubble or balloon, means our balloon is opening up and expanding. Mm -hmm. It's becoming thinner. It's becoming more permeable. We're actually allowing time to become the illusion that we realize theoretically that time is an illusion, but we're allowing our balloon of time to really disappear so that we're able to access not just what's been within this limited existence of time, but what's been outside of it. Mm -hmm. Levels of light and information not seen here before. So as we access this healing spectrum, six studies, for example, so far, just measuring the DNA itself, shows that it restructures, or as I say, reconnects our very DNA, and the light that we emit becomes phenomenally more coherent at a higher vibratory level. Now, light is not just a concept, as, as we used to say in you know, metaphysics and spirituality and religion, we talk about light and that's as far as it went. But we know from the work of Dr. Fritz Popp in Germany, for example, and others, that each of our cells emit specific levels of light, that when our health is diminishing, that light is dimming. When our health mm -hmm. is coming back up, that light is coming back up. But we're not just speaking about an optimal level of earthly light emission any longer. Mm -hmm. We are now accessing light emissions that are not just higher, but more coherent. Coherence is, in a sense, you could say, it's a higher level of harmony that we start to experience from high levels of meditation, for example. A light that's emitted from our cells. Examples we understand here on Earth would be um, Fluorescent light bulbs are very incoherent. The light is very jerky. It messes with our brains, our thought systems. It gives us headaches at work. It throws women's menstrual systems off the, the whole thing. It's, it's not a very smooth, coherent blend. Incandescent lights are more coherent. The sun is a much higher level of coherence. It's... Um, in sound, you could look at digital sound versus analog sound. Digital sound is more clear, but they're little jerks, and they, they affect the brain not in a smooth way, where analog becomes more natural. So these more coherent light levels seem to be why the scientists feel reconnective healings are so instantaneous, so tissue-changing, and so life-lasting. Okay, so that sounds really scientific. Yeah, doesn't it? But <clears throat> when... Uh... Uh, as I was reading your book, though, uh, people are talking about that there are beings coming in, one of them named, I mean, Solomon, uh, or... One we named Solomon, okay. correct. Which is, well, that's, that's a whole uh, question in itself, but 
I mean, when you talk about beings or entities coming in and doing some healing uh -huh. work, I mean, that doesn't really sound like it fits into the scientific paradigm. Well, the scientific paradigm only tends to include what science has discovered up until now. So if science has discovered something 100 years ago, that means up until 100 years ago it didn't exist, but suddenly it existed because it was in the scientific paradigm? Well, obviously not. Mm -hmm. Obviously, everything in the universe has to exist before science discovers it, or science would have nothing left to discover. So it's very easy to say something is not scientific and confuse that phrase with meaning it doesn't necessarily validly exist because most of us confuse absence of proof with proof of absence. The reality is everything exists first. So if things are existing on other dimensions, they exist before science discovers them. Fascinatingly enough, today, science has already recognized up to so far, I believe, at least 12 different dimensions. Mm -hmm. There's the entire theory of well, what's called the many worlds theory that says everything is happening in all planes at once. We recognize that time is not a linear process of past, present, and future. We're recognizing that time is happening all at once. It's like one example you could use is a huge diamond with the many different facets of the diamond and we name the facet that we presently are experiencing as present and if we come from another facet we consider that past and another one future yet all the facets have to exist at once or the diamond doesn't exist so in reality we can throw out the little business cards some of us have that say we do past life readings and recognize that they're simultaneous life readings that there's no more deja vu it's all simul vu so this actually is science but you know science is not one animal with four legs a head and a tail there are different aspects of science and so they don't necessarily all coexist on the same level of consciousness. You know, it wasn't too long ago where it looked as if science and religion were walking in opposite directions. But that's because it also looked to science as if the earth were flat. So they continued to seemingly walk away. But really the earth was round. So their journey brought them this way. Science went from separate and distinct to relativity, to quantum, to consciousness, to truth, and our religions became progressively more and more, we rediscovered the spirituality. And as science and religion, or science and spirituality, continued their journeys, they found they weren't walking away. They were actually returning to one another with gifts of support. And this is the time that we're living in right now. So we have the option of recognizing that there's more and being in the knowingness that science will probably eventually discover it, or we have the option of holding ourselves back from recognizing things by saying it doesn't fit into the scientific model, and although we still have to recognize the scientific model is limited by including only what science has so far discovered. Mm -hmm. that Not that I have an opinion on the subject. <laughs> that was very well answered, very thorough. Wow. Uh, I have a question uh, going back to what you said about the uh, basic forms of man-made technology and the incoherence inherent in them. 
And for example, there's also Wi-Fi, uh, all, all kinds of man-made technologies cause, uh, cause uh, you know, they're not compatible with the human biosystem. And some people seem to be affected more than others. I know somebody very well whose brainwaves get scrambled all the time. And I'm wondering if, uh, if something like reconnective healing uh, could, could allow us to not be affected by those. Do you know what I mean? Or will we always yeah. be affected by them because we're here on this plane? Or is there a way that we cannot be affected by them? The more whole we become, the less at effect mm -hmm. we allow ourselves to become. Mm -hmm. The less, you know, you know there's always someone in, in this spiritual world saying that they can't go into a shopping mall because they're so sensitive that mm -hmm. they take on everyone's you know, emotional upsets. Now, in reality, if that person were so truly a healer, so truly the light, they recognize that you throw as much dark onto a light beam as you want to. You're not going to darken the beam. If anything, mm -hmm. it grows brighter. Mm -hmm. So this becomes their desire to appear outwardly more real mm -hmm. by taking on affectation as if they're being made ill and taking on you know, weaknesses or other problems. Our choice is to be light or to be dark, to be at cause or to be at effect. Mm -hmm. I do believe that as we become more and more light, as we become more and more spirit of the universe, we might not require so much the artificial technology because we'll be accessing through our own awareness mm -hmm. if and as we allow things to happen. Mm -hmm. But we have to allow things to happen. It, it doesn't always come from conscious intention because often our conscious intention becomes a neediness which becomes an attachment. Mm -hmm. And when we allow ourselves to flow, we access the field better, this field that 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 I, I say used to be, well, I'd call it the field that refused to die because mm -hmm. it, we used to refer to this field of information as the etheric field. And, mm -hmm. and you know, science was just mortified that seemingly otherwise intelligent human beings would believe in an invisible field. So science set out to do what science does best, which is to disprove it. And in the late 1800s, science disproved the etheric field. Unfortunately for science, the etheric field didn't realize that it had been disproven, so in the early 1920s it had the audacity to return when science disproved it for a second time, then it came back again, and now today science uses it, so they changed the name from the etheric field to zero-point field, and yet we all just simply wink and we call it the field. It's this field of information in which we all exist, and that exists within us we access it when we're least focused on it. Children are least focused on it. So put a bunch of children on a long bus drive. One child falls asleep, another one stares at them until they wake up. They're in the field. Be lost in something you're doing at home when you're not really focused on anything. And a, a, friend's, a thought of a friend you haven't heard from in three years passes through your head and three minutes later the phone rings and it's them. You're in the field. So people who are psychics, people who are geniuses, people who are healers, it's no big secret. They're really allowing themselves to access the field without intentional focus or attachment to needing a specific result. In other words, they're not second-guessing the information. 
and it flows through in that childlike manner. I was, um, I was just two days ago, three at most, I was in my car and I was listening to Spotify on the radio where you can find pretty much any music that's on any album anywhere. And I thought of an album of Middle Eastern music when I was younger. My mother and uh, my favorite aunt mm -hmm. used to come over, and my aunt was from Lebanon. And they used to practice belly dancing. And I found this old album on Spotify in my mind. I was immediately there back, will, will not count the mm -hmm. decades, mm -hmm. in that room in my house where the music was playing and they were belly dancing. And all of a sudden, my phone rang. And I looked at the phone, and it was someone I hadn't spoken to in 30 years. Mm -hmm. It was my aunt's daughter, and I knew something was wrong, and I called, and someone was in the hospital. Mm -hmm. 30 years, the phone rang. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't even them on the phone. It was a pocket dial, but I knew something was wrong. I made three phone calls and found out. Because the field talks to us, and it's up to us to allow ourselves to observe. That's the coherence of the communication of light. Mm -hmm. And our bodies heal through that interaction. Can I use your hand for a second? Mm -hmm. just, just open your fingers for me. Good, got him right there. If I come in here, I allow my arm to float. If I push it down, it kind of floats back up again. I bob it down and I watch for that little tiny movement in your fingertips, such as your index finger. Let me see if that plays again. And I notice what I feel. It's just about me. I'm going to bring you to a more comfortable position. That's good. There we go, and then I see the ring finger begin to have that little movement, and I play with it. And when I do this, Hugh, mm. what's so funny? Can you feel it here? Mm -hmm. What's it feel like? It's like, uh, almost like a little um, pinpricks or a little... Little pinpricks or sparkles. And do you see how your fingers give mm -hmm. those little jerks and those movements to yeah. it? So we respond to it. We interact with it. This is mm -hmm. a spectrum of energy, light, and information. It's talking to us. It's not forcing a healing chemically mm -hmm. or surgically. What it's doing is it's giving us a reminder of our more universal light vibration, what we experience in between these lifetimes here. And somewhere inside, then a little voice goes off inside of you, for example, inside of Hugh, and it says, hey, I remember this. This is me vibrating as light. This is me vibrating healthy. I think I'll do it again. And as we, as we return to that vibration of light, anything denser or heavier than light, which tends to include most of our challenges, not just our health challenges, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, but our relationship challenges, our career challenges, most of these densities have very little left to hold on to, so they simply mm -hmm. fall away as appropriate for each person on their life course. And if we take home nothing else from this entire interview, nothing else, understand these next two things, these next two concepts, which are A, healing is just that simple, mm -hmm. just that simple, and B, anything more complicated than that, anything, crystals, wands, pendants, protective amulets, um, techniques, anything more complicated than that, even the pyramid hats, they're designed to sell us something. And it's not so much the object or the ritual or the procedure that it's selling us, as much as it is that it's selling us in the fear that we are less than enough, we are less than abundantly enough. And that's not a bad thing to sell us on that fear, because it serves a role. Mm -hmm. 
these are not bad people who are selling us these objects and these fear-based rituals. When we all return to where we come from and we recognize the roles we played in each other's life, lives, mm -hmm. we will see them too. Mm -hmm. And we'll say, thank you for making me pull up these make-believe zippers and protect myself this way, that way, and the other. Thank you, you brought me to a level of fear. You made the hurdle high enough that I decided I couldn't live that way anymore. I jumped over it and I gained my lessons. I might not have made it there in this lifetime if you didn't help. Mm -hmm. No one is doing anything that's bad. They're not bad people. We're playing our role. Some seem more pleasant, mm -hmm. some seem less. But our responsibility is to jump over those hurdles of fear, not to buy into them, mm -hmm. but to jump over them, to recognize that we are loved. Because we, we cannot, every choice we make, every action that we take comes either from Fear, lack, limitation, the illusion of separation, the illusion of darkness, uh, the need for control, or comes from love, light, prosperity, abundance, unity, oneness, freedom. And we can't give a gift. We're unwilling to accept ourselves. We can't stand in fear, protecting ourselves in a white flame and a gold flame and a purple flame and shaking off negative energy and spraying ourselves down with alcohol and bring about healings that reside in love. We can't stand in the need for control doing technique ABC one, two, three, and step in the freedom that allows us to become the observer and the observed, the witness and the witness, the seer and the seen, and to observe without judgment because as healers today, it's up to us to recognize, to understand that our role is to open a door, period. The other person's role is to have the courage to choose to step through that door where we get lost is that instead of being focused in the process of healing, we focus on what we consider should be the appropriate end result. We find ourselves opening the door with our right hand and trying to push them through with our left hand. If that doesn't work, then we try to kick them through with our right foot. and that doesn't work, we try to kick them through with our left foot until we get the result that we in our limited conscious human educated mind feel that the healing should take because it takes a different centering to learn to simply witness and to recognize that our reward is to observe the beauty of the perfection of the orchestration of God, love, and the universe and the healing process. So in a reconnective healing session, uh, the person experiences uh, the energy such as Hugh just did now, and then he can, uh, re the person can remember that feeling and come back to it, or is that we it? We teach you how to feel it better. Here, here's what happens. So for instance, it's Friday night, the 8th. Mm. We give a three-hour presentation, I think. It's at the, the Don something hotel. I can't remember it. Do you? Don Valley Hotel. Don, Don Valley, Valley hotel. hotel. So from 7 to 10 at the Don Valley Hotel, I'll give a three-hour presentation open to the public. We'll talk about the history of the work, the theory, the philosophy, the science. We'll give everyone an opportunity to feel it in your hands. And we'll bring up mm -hmm. volunteers from the audience and give live demonstrations of the healings there. But Saturday and Sunday, November 9 and 10, is very different. Saturday and Sunday, what we'll do is I'll demonstrate levels of the work from the stage, and we'll all go to massage tables. So let's say the two of you come. Maybe Hugh will stand at the head of a massage table. You might lie down on a massage table. The teaching team and I will walk around. We'll take your hands. We will show you how to find this, how to feel it, how to access it, and begin to play with it. And Hugh then will witness you on the table, mm -hmm. probably go into involuntary movements of your mm -hmm. fingers or your feet. And we'll show you how to access it differently to expand it. You'll see 
our arms jerk or her legs move, then we'll go back to the chairs, talk about what we learned, a little more Q&A, philosophy, science, demonstrate a new level of the work, and go back to the tables again. But by this Sunday, the 10th, if you're there, I can pretty much make you two promises. Chair A, you will be able to do anything and everything in the way of healing that I can do. And B, you will be able to do anything and everything in the way of healing that any human being anywhere on this planet can do, whether they were raised by monks in a cave in a mountaintop in Tibet, fed grains of seed, each one blessed by its own individual lama, mm -hmm. or whether they moved to a church in Brazil and changed their last name of God. It doesn't matter today the story. What matters today is that we learn to transcend mm -hmm. the story. You'll be able to do anything and everything in the way of healing that anyone can do. The willingness, your ability to do it, or your, your actualizing the doingness of this will be limited only by your willingness to transcend the techniques that we've learned up until now. Mm -hmm. So anybody uh, attending the workshop this weekend, uh, now at, they're, they're learning in effect to, to work with these new energies that are now accessible to us. And, uh, but if they do them in the way that you teach, then that's called reconnective. Healing. What we're doing is we're teaching how to completely transcend technique. We're not teaching you technique. We're teaching how to transcend technique. You don't need another set of training wheels on your right. bicycle. Once mm -hmm. you've mastered your sense of balance on mm -hmm. the bicycle, mm -hmm. do you really want to add a second, third, or fourth set of training wheels? No. Well, every time that we learn a new technique, mm -hmm. we're learning a new set of training wheels for us to start to, to begin to find our balance in the healing world. Mm -hmm. At a certain point in time, the training wheels of technique need to come off. I'm so glad to hear you say that because, uh, you know, Hugh, when you said I was a healer, and yeah, I'm, I'm actually not. I don't consider myself that. <clears throat> I uh, took a couple of classes, but I couldn't do it because I felt my hands wanted to do what they wanted to do, and I really didn't want any technique. Now, even today, we're teaching you know? kids how to ride the bicycle. With, with, with little things that scratch the ground mm -hmm. and make it sound instead of the training wheels. Mm -hmm. We don't even really need the training wheels, <clears throat> excuse me, we don't even need the training wheels really to learn to find the bicycle any longer. But we like, we enjoy the accoutrements, we enjoy the certificates that we get with our energy and, healing and techniques, but they're merely well, pieces of paper. And we become stronger if we're willing to go into that room where we've hung all those certificates, take them down and go, this is a piece of paper. Let me rip it up and throw it away because the degree to which I demonstrate who I am externally with papers and certificates and healing clothes is opposite. It's inversely proportionate to the degree to which I own my truth. Mm -hmm. If I truly own the truth of who I am, then I can wear a pair of Gap blue jeans. Mm -hmm. I need not display to the world mm -hmm. someone else confirming who I am because I own me. Do you think society has come to that uh, level, Eric, because uh, you know some people get certificates just to have their certificate That's right. because they not necessarily even that they want it, but they think other people need it, need to see it. That's because if we own who we are, no one else needs anything else but to interact with us, knowing who we mm -hmm. are, mm -hmm. and they will see who you are in your mm -hmm. eyes. Now let me that's tell you true. something that's going to sound contradictory. Yeah. Guess what? When you come to the Reconnective Healing Seminar at the end, we're going to send you a certificate. 
I'm still going to tell you it's a piece of paper and yeah. throw it away. Okay. But mm -hmm. the reason we do it is because a long time ago, I gave a seminar once when my seminar, you know, right now our seminars can be hundreds to thousands of people, depending on where we give them. Um, I gave a seminar once when I was beginning, and it was only going to be about 24 people. And half of them didn't show up that weekend because there was a different seminar and a different subject even, but it gave certificates. So I figured, mm. all right, I'll give certificates. I give certificates not for the reason most people do. It's because some people want to come to something that gives a certificate. So it entices them to learn and discover it. But part of what they'll discover along the way is I'm going to say, don't put that certificate on your okay. wall. I like that. Well, I think it makes, you know, if we get to that fully evolved society mm -hmm. you're talking mm -hmm. about, uh, then everybody will realize that nobody needs certificates anymore. Yeah. We don't, we're can't wait, can't <laughs> wait, can't wait until we're there. What do you want on your tombstone? The world wasn't ready? Or do you want on your tombstone, <laughs> I helped get the world ready? Well, wait a sec. We're going to a world where we don't need tombstones because we've got the immortality rates. <laughs> well, that's rates. a whole other thing. Yes, your immortality rates. I see that. Or, I mean, but, or even the, the idea of healing, right? Uh, yeah, healing can, is can not about living in this physical body forever. Do you really okay. want to live in your physical body forever? Wouldn't you like to experience something different? Lord knows I would. I mean, my understanding, my, my mother died giving birth to me. Uh, at a time where you didn't talk about this. And one of the first insights she had, one of the very first clear mm -hmm. insights, and if you speak to other people who've had the experience, they'll give you the same thing, is that there are old souls and there are new souls, and we cycle through our many mm -hmm. lifetimes for purposes. Healing is about having this experience in its fullest form. It's not about cheating the system. Mm -hmm. It's our fear and insecurity about death that makes us want to live here forever, but if we really felt open to it, then we'd want to experience life in many different forms. And I'm very, very, very much looking forward to the beautiful experience of what we consider that afterlife, of what we experience in between lifetimes. Now, I'm not ready to go. I have lots of things to do here. I don't want to go now, but I'm not afraid of that experience. Mm -hmm. I actually look forward to experiencing that, and then I look forward to experiencing, if I choose at that time, to come back and play the game again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For how long have you been uh, teaching this? Uh, when did you actually become aware of? This started on a Thursday. I can't tell you which one because I didn't recognize the importance enough to have marked it down. Mm -hmm. But I know it was a Thursday in August of 1993. What happened was I was awakened in the middle of the night by a very bright light. I opened my eyes to see what it was, and it wasn't anything seemingly spiritual or metaphysical. It was something the lamp next to my bed, my bed, for some reason, it decided to turn itself on. I had that lamp for 10 years. It hadn't turned itself on before, but there it was. And, and I felt as if there was someone in my home who had been watching me. Mm -hmm. It's not a comfortable feeling. I got it with a knife, a can of pepper spray, as you probably know, my Doberman Pinscher, and I went hunting. Couldn't find anyone. I told myself it was my imagination, and I sort of uncomfortably went back to sleep. But that Monday when I went into my office, I would adjust my chiropractic patients, finish with them lying on their backs, tell them to close their eyes, relax, allow the adjustment to settle mm -hmm. into place. And when they were lying there, I was feeling sensations in my hands I hadn't felt before. As I moved my hands around them, their eyes would dart back and forth, their fingers and arms would move, and their 
legs would shake when they opened their eyes. They told me they were feeling sets of hands resting comfortingly on them, that they could feel my hands, that they were seeing colors they'd never seen before, smelling fragrances of flowers they'd mm -hmm. never before smelled. And they started reporting healings, real healings. They were mm -hmm. getting up out of wheelchairs, some of them, vision and hearing returning. Um, children with cerebral palsy or epilepsy were suddenly mm -hmm. able to walk and run and play and speak normally, not have seizures. Their, my, their parents would call, their doctors would call. They said, what did you do? I said, I didn't do anything, I don't tell anyone, mm -hmm. which went over about as big as the U.S. government trying to just say no to drugs. Mm -hmm. So soon everyone started coming in from everywhere, asking for the same thing, and then asking me to teach it. And I said, you gotta be crazy. Teach mm -hmm. this, I'm waving my hands there. I look like a fool, you go outside, mm -hmm. wave your hands in the air. Mm -hmm. Let me know what your neighbors have to say about you. But more and more, my patients would say, I drove home from your office, I pulled up in front of my house. Before I could hit the button to open my automatic garage door, it started opening and close by itself. I walked inside, my lamp and TV started mm -hmm. turning off and on. I felt sensations in my hands, I held them by my grandfather, my aunt, they regained their hearing, their ability to walk. And we began to recognize that once we interact with what science today refers to as the reconnective healing spectrum, that something changes that not only allows us to access our own healings, but to facilitate healings for others. At this point in time, since then, I've now taught close to 100,000 people how to do the work. The book, The Reconnection, is already in 39 languages, and the new book that's called Solomon Speaks on Reconnecting Your Life that just came out a few months ago is already in 20-some languages. And mm -hmm. You know, it's the strangest thing because, in short, I went home on a Thursday night thinking I was this little chiropractor. I came back on a Monday and I was something else. And my parents always told me I was something else, but I don't think this was what they had in mind. Mm -hmm. Did you ha what kind of uh, obstacles or considerations were there to developing this into a, it's not really a modality, I guess, but... It's a way to transcend modality and yes, technique. It's, yes. it's a genre of healing that allows that comes to us as a gift for allowing ourselves to simply observe, recognize, and feel, to immerse ourselves mm -hmm. in an awareness mm -hmm. of. But what was your question? What was involved in bringing that to the, the public? Yes. Was it, you know, was it difficult to bring it to the public? Did for me, really, none. Mm -hmm. um, because I recognized immediately I was standing in the presence of something huge. And, mm -hmm. And in retelling the story of things that went on, because there were lights turning on a mm -hmm. few times a week and doors, I would wake up and there'd be a door open that was closed mm -hmm. when I went to bed, all sorts of things. And in retelling a story, it's easy to say, it seems as if I should have been afraid. Mm -hmm. What that really means is, it seems as if a common way of interpreting this might have been fear, mm -hmm. like the concept of a God of being God-fearing in the mm -hmm. Christian Bible is really a mistranslation. The mm -hmm. original word wasn't fear. The original word was awe. Awe is this neutral, mm -hmm. gorgeous, immense splendor. And then we paint it with concepts of fear mm -hmm. or concepts of love and wonder. I felt wonder and I stepped into it. So people always want to say to me, oh, you were so brave, you know, and, and, and they mean that in the nicest way. And I would think, no, I wasn't. Because I didn't, I didn't interpret that awe as something to be afraid of. Mm -hmm. I felt 
compelled to share it. I felt compelled to teach it. And when Hay House, the book publisher, asked me to write the book, and uh, they gave me the format of how to write the reconnection, mm -hmm. and it even has a basic how-to, so you can begin to access the healing frequencies on a personal level on your own. I mean, just like you could read a book on hairdressing or mm -hmm. on dentistry, you can take better care of your own hair and teeth. It doesn't mm -hmm. make you a dentist or a stylist. Mm -hmm. Reading the book doesn't make you a reconnective healing practitioner, but you can begin to access it. But I wrote the book, and the only fear that I experienced was the fear of explaining two of the different things that happened in the whole evolution of this work. Mm -hmm. It was the fear about talking about the three-month period of time where over 50, 50 of my patients, some of these patients had been mine for 10 or 12 years, some of them were new patients on the first day, and when I would hold my hands near them, they lost consciousness and they spoke six word-for-word -word phrases. The first four were, we are here to tell you to continue doing what you were doing. What you were doing is bringing light and information onto the planet. What you're doing is reconnecting strings, and what you're doing is reconnecting strands. And the other fear was to speak about reconnecting strands, because I knew strands meant DNA. Mm -hmm. And I tried to leave those two parts out of the story. I tried, and I'm good. I mean, I can cover over anything and just skip and keep going. But they left such a hole in the mm -hmm. comprehension of what was going on that I finally just had to hold my nose and jump into the pool, and, and I, I had to include it. We didn't have the research then. There are now six international studies confirming that this restructures mm -hmm. and alters our DNA and our mm -hmm. light emission. There is now the book of Solomon Speaks because over 50 different people channeled these, or I don't like that word channeling because of the baggage around it, but mm -hmm. brought in these six, they spoke six mm -hmm. verbatim phrases, some of whom, none of whom ever had a voice come through them before, some of whom got angry at me or frightened and stopped coming into my office. I said, I don't know what you're angry about, you're the one speaking the voice. Mm -hmm. But um, after three months, it stopped coming through everyone except the first patient, Fred Ponslov. And we recorded these sessions. Later, we had them transcribed into paper. Later, we had them transcribed into paper, and we put them out into a book. Mm -hmm. The book is called Solomon Speaks on Reconnecting Your Life. So you've been doing this for quite a while, uh, two decades, 93, uh, 2013. Yes. And do you notice a big difference in people's uh, receptivity? People are much more receptive now, which brings me back to mm -hmm. a statement we made a little earlier, which is um, in the very beginning, mm -hmm. this was so dramatic. I mean, mm -hmm. voices were coming through people, mm -hmm. arms and legs were jerking, um, instantaneous healings were happening, whether these are people in their 90s or, or I, some infants with life threatening that, that were labeled terminal were only 30 days old. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking the media needs to know about this. And I would mm -hmm. speak to the media and individually they say I'm fascinated by it. I really, I want to know more. I even want to experience it. But the world's not ready. Mm -hmm. And I said, but don't you understand if you wait for the world to get ready, mm -hmm. you've missed your purpose. Mm -hmm. 
in being in this world. Your job is to get the world ready. Mm -hmm. So at that point in time, jokingly, I would say I probably couldn't get into a hospital if I was mm -hmm. driven up to the emergency room in an ambulance. Mm -hmm. Now we speak at hospitals, universities, um, the United Nations, Madison Square Garden, we teach to governments, we teach. But basically, the most exciting is to speak to the lay people, mm -hmm. the mainstream, because I believe in what some people refer to as the 10-10-80 principle. 10% mm -hmm. of the people are going to listen. They're going to listen and believe. Anything at all that you have to say to them, as long as it sounds even remotely spiritual or metaphysical, they're, just gonna, they're, they're not at all evaluative. It's preaching to the choir. It's a little boring. Mm -hmm. You could spend your life doing it, but it's not that mm -hmm. exciting. 10% of the people are not going to listen to anything you have to say. Mm -hmm. Even if you present them with 100 double-blind controlled, randomized, published, peer-reviewed, journaled studies, they're going to cover their ears, they'll cover their eyes, and unfortunately, they will often neglect to cover their mouths. Mm -hmm. But 80% of the people, the mainstream, they'll, they'll just say, Tell me something that makes sense, I'll listen. Mm -hmm. Say something else that makes sense, I'll walk into the room. Say something else, I'll sit down and engage you in conversation. Here's where we get to make the change. Mm -hmm. This is where, I, this, these are the people, the mainstream, because we have to change you mm -hmm. and me and your brother-in-law. And when we do all these things, mm -hmm. I hope you don't have a specific brother-in-law in mind. It was just an example. Uh, when we do all of these things, <clears throat> the world changes because we change one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. They do say progress marches forward, often one funeral at a time. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you that um, where it used to be a little challenging going into some of the medical schools where the students were still invested in a more narrow-minded approach, speaking now at hospitals and universities to the important achieved doctors and such in the field, the reception is dramatically, dramatically open, especially when they see the demonstrations of the healings, because we've trained close to about 20,000 mainstream healthcare mm -hmm. practitioners, doctors and nurses all around the world so far. So reconnective healing is in private practices. Mm -hmm. It is in hospitals and universities. However, In spite some of the bumper stickers you may have seen, doctors don't do it better. Mm -hmm. Well, which is why this weekend you're in Toronto and you're teaching anybody who can make it to the Don Valley Hotel. Everyone who is driven yeah. to learn this work, we're at the Don Valley Hotel. It'll be Friday night from 7 to 10 p.m. And then all to actually learn the work, it's all day Saturday and Sunday, 9.30 to 6.30. And... Uh, well, I wish we could keep talking all day or, or just sit here and listen to you, uh, Eric. Because, yeah, you uh, do kind of wind uh, me up and my mouth moves, doesn't well, it? <laughs> that. It's very interesting, though. You would think after all this time I'd be bored with it, but I'm just more and more excited with the discoveries of the healings of the potential of yeah. who we are. Yeah. Well, we'd love to have you back next time you come to Toronto and, and maybe we can carry this conversation on um, because uh, there's still so much stuff that uh, we didn't even get into that we'd love Definitely. to. But, we should, but people can still register for this this weekend. I believe there's still some space available. I'm not certain. If you go to the website, 
which is just just as the book is called the reconnection heal others heal yourself the website is the reconnection.com you have to include mm -hmm. the word the so it's the reconnection.com and um, you can register right on the website or they'll give you a phone number to call but do 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 it soon because I really don't know honestly apparently how much it's there limited is in space. yeah you have yeah. to do it quickly if you want to go this weekend so thereconnection.com so thanks Eric yeah. Thank for you being very here much. my and, pleasure uh, can I ask you very just a quick sure, question in closing for the sure. weekend uh, because you were mentioning that sometimes there are large numbers of people attending the workshops mm -hmm. do you personally uh, interact with every person or no Oh, I, I'm the one. I teach these seminars. Uh, I, I'll have, I'll have one main co-teacher, mm -hmm. you know, a, another um, head teaching assistant mm -hmm. with me, and then we'll have a team of teaching assistants on the floor. So for approximately every 16, 18 mm -hmm. people or so, they'll be their own teaching mm -hmm. assistant on the floor, and then I'm there and try to hide from me. Try <laughs> to hide from me. <laughs> okay, excellent. Thank you so much, and uh, thanks for making the world Thank ready. Thank you, my pleasure. Okay, so we're going to take a little break. Actually, okay. Meredith Shaw is here. We've got uh, one of her new videos called uh, Girls... Uh, I can't even read my own writing. Girls Who Believe, and we're going to come back with Meredith right after this. Thanks. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank uh, you. You do such a great job. Shake it up, I'll call your name, we'll call it a night. Sometimes we need a little comfort. Sometimes we need a little speed. Right now I need your number. Come on, give me what I Just because I can Come on, come on, come on, baby Can't you feel me looking? Don't you give a damn Come on, come on, come on, darling I'm away forever just because I can Oh, my, my, oh, my, my I'm about to let you do what you like I said, oh, my, my, oh, my, my I'm about to let you do what you like I said, oh, my, my, oh, my, my I'm about to let you do what you like I said, oh,
take me out, we'll shake it up. You'll call my name, we'll find us some trouble, and then we'll call it a night. Okay, welcome back to the show. Uh, it's B. Hugh and Rose is here, and we are now joined by Meredith Shaw, and that was the video, uh, Girls Who Believe. Right, Meredith? I, I think it was, or was it Call It A Night? I'm not actually quite sure. When I took a little gander, oh, really? I thought it might have been Call It A Night. I don't know. But maybe it was Girls Who Believe. <laughs> Either way, it was an amazing video you just saw. <laughs> yeah, so uh, now, uh, so this is from uh, your most recent album? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've, uh, my, my first full record was uh, with, produced by a guy named Gordy Johnson, and we did it at uh, Willie Nelson's studio in Austin. Um, so that was a record called Place Called Happy, which Girls Who Believe is a track on that, on that album. Um, and then since then, I've uh, most recently released an EP with uh, Joel Plaskett. He produced that one, and it's called Trouble. Trouble? Yeah. Why did you call it Trouble? Because <laughs> that's what it was. It was just getting into a whole bunch of trouble. I, I've, I've loved Joel Plaskett for a very long time. He's a He's tremendous wonderful. songwriter, amazing, you know, most much beloved Canadian. And mm -hmm. uh, I met him through my work with Gordy Johnson. Um, and it, yeah, we, we wrote a song together and, and, and it, it was called Trouble. And then that just seemed to make sense for what we were doing in the studio. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah. So um, now, now, where are you from originally? Here, I'm from Toronto. Toronto? Yes, born and raised. So what made you want to get into the music scene? I, I, I just sort of don't ever remember not wanting to do that. I, I remember at about 14 years old, like, I felt like I was coming out to my parents as a musician. I sort of felt like they're both lawyers. Um, and now my brother is also a lawyer. So I'm kind of the artistic one of the, uh, of the family. But they, I mean, they've been so supportive. And from day one, when I said that, they were kind of like, well, yeah, we know. <laughs> um, How you know. would you describe yourself primarily as a vocalist, songwriter? Do you play an instrument? Uh, I would say I, I'm a singer and a songwriter. I play, um, you know, how I write is uh, mostly on the piano, a little bit of guitar. Um, and, and now I also do a lot of co-writing. I spend quite a bit of time in Nashville and a little bit in L.A. and, mm. and work with a lot of people, both writing for sort of my projects or theirs or other artists, um, which has been a really cool um, newish thing for me to be writing for other people. How does it, how does it feel hearing somebody interpret what you've written? It's really cool, mm -hmm. I, you know, because they do it in such a, uh, you know, their, their own way. And, mm -hmm. and what I like about writing for other people, too, is it really frees you up in terms of what you would feel like you want to be singing. Like as yeah. a singer-songwriter, for me, when I'm writing things, it has to ring true to me. It has to strike a chord somewhere within my experience or my history. But when I'm writing for someone else, I'm like, well, I yeah. don't know, maybe they would say that. Yeah. And then you can be a little bit more perhaps adventurous and then you bring that back into your own writing. So, But what really about, cool. you know, because you, you, authenticity is really important, Huge. right? When, yes. when you're writing a song or yeah. when you're writing anything or doing any kind of art, yes. right? So if you're Absolutely. making up some story that somebody else might say, mm -hmm. like how do you stay authentic? I think you need to always root it in honesty. I mean, that's what I'm attracted to uh, in art. I think that's the whole thing. Um, I think that's what makes you perk up when you hear different things. It's just the the ability to, to know that that's really something that, that is true for that person. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's a challenge when you're writing for someone else. Sometimes if I know specifically who it is we're writing for, we can get into kind of who they are and where they're at, especially in the Nashville mm -hmm. scene. Um, you get kind of calls for, for certain artists who are looking for certain songs. And, 
you know, if they don't have kids, then you probably don't want to uh, write about a yeah. child or, you know, so there mm -hmm. are certain little things that can kind of help you out. But um, it's, it's, been, it's been an interesting learning curve for me mm -hmm. that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, finding that balance between what rings true for me hopefully would also ring true for yeah, someone else. Yeah, and not having any attachment as mm -hmm. to how somebody else interprets it and... and Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. And I've been the beneficiary of a lot of people, you know, lending their talents and co-writing mm -hmm. to me. So I, mm -hmm. I work mainly, my main co-writer is a, is a man named Patrick Valentine here in Toronto. Um, and I, again, I met him through Gordy Johnson. And uh, he's written a lot of the big, big sugar hits mm -hmm. and the trues. And he's a wonderful, wonderful guy. I'm very lucky to write with him. And, you know, I've been the interpreter of some of his mm -hmm. songs and his lyrics. So I've seen it from both sides. Yeah, that's so wonderful. far so good. Yeah. <laughs> now it's got to be exciting to be, uh, you know, doing music from Toronto, but going down to Nashville and working mm -hmm. down there in that milieu, or yeah. going to LA and doing that. But I mean, there was a, the time when going to Nashville and, and and doing your musical career from Nashville meant, I mean, you were uh, there weren't a lot of people doing that, and and you know the the music industry. There's so much music these days. Yes, and right? so many people have the ability to make it. You know, yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. Like, so we could make I'm, a hit right now. Yes, we could. <laughs> we could, but uh, but how do you really like? I mean, what's your do? Do you feel? How do you feel about that? Do you feel that you've really got to up your game, or you've, or or that you really have to, or that you're naturally, you know, just in a better position than a lot of other people? Like, you know, how do you feel about that? environment today. I just, I mean, the Nashville scene itself is so inspiring. I mean, you go down there and you get your butt kicked, basically, as a songwriter. You know, you think you've got some chops and then you go there and you're like, okay. Um, but that's, that's the space that you go down in. You know, you, you go open and you but go ready to how do you know when you're getting your butt kicked? How do I know? Yeah, because, like, you know. Because <laughs> I'm sitting in a session with, with this amazing, you know, but why? songwriter that just seems to come up with things effortlessly and you know I'm sitting there doing my homework and struggling you know like what, what are they coming up with just great lines and great well, riffs I or? mean there's a Nashville Nashville is becoming much more of just a music mecca as opposed to a country music mecca but still the the vibe there is country and the songs that you're tending to write there um, you know relate to that way but Jack White's there and the Black Keys are there and so I mean there's a whole musical community going on down there but um, the community I tend to write with when I'm there is in the country genre and um, yeah, the, I mean, the guys and girls who are there signed to publishing deals who aren't artists or are, I shouldn't say just writers, but they're writers, uh, they write two songs a day, every day. I mean, that's wow. what they do. See, so, that's the part of the problem. There's too many songs. Well, they don't all get cut, though. <laughs> you probably haven't heard, you know, 80% of them. I mean, they just, but, but the, you know, that whole 10,000 hours thing. I mean, they just mm. write wow. songs. A couple songs every day and what I love in Nashville when I've brought back here to where I, when I work with people here is they finish the song like it's a four-hour block and you write a song you don't wow. come up with you know a cool hook and then have some wine and that's it like you you still have some wine but you finish the song <laughs> whether it's whether it's good finished or not but it's it's something that you could show someone really? which I think is a is a cool um just work ethic that I hadn't yeah. A real discipline. A real discipline. A real I mean, discipline. a real discipline of the creative spirit, which yeah. I think is pretty cool. Yeah. You know, I, as opposed to just it taking you where it may. They yeah. really have. Yeah. 
you're forced to really almost. ground. You're yeah. forced to really ground. Absolutely. So when somebody goes to Nashville, I'm not a musician. Hugh's, Hugh's a musician as well. Mm. So this might be a little bit of a naive question, but if you go to, uh, as a musician, you go to Nashville, how do you let people know you're there or do you go on invitation? Uh, there are a lot of things that you know, we as Canadians can take advantage of when you're going there sort of for the first time. SoCan being one of them. There's a, um, you know, SoCan has an amazing SoCan house that you can mm -hmm. stay at for free in Nashville if you're a writer. Oh. And so there are a lot of um, things that people can really look into if they're looking to go down there for the mm -hmm. first time. But yeah, I mean, the more and more you go, the more connections you make. And I mean, luckily I... I have a nice team of people that help me out with some of those things. So yeah, but but it's definitely the first time. I mean, the first time I went down there, I was fourteen. I mean, yeah. I was you know. So there you are. You're down there yeah. from Toronto, yes. and you're getting your butt kicked by these Nashville songwriters. <laughs> like I'm just. <laughs> you said I was I was kicking butt, but no, I well, totally was getting my butt kicked. Well, yeah, I yeah. know, but here yeah. here we are. Because what what you know, you've got a musical career here, right? Sure, yes. You know, and you're trying to have, I presume, hits and yeah. make money in all the music stuff. business and, and all that kind of stuff. All that concept. And um, and and these guys are writing two songs a day, mm -hmm. right? And uh, and now you're down there with these guys yes. and girls writing yes. songs. Mm -hmm. And so you've written a song now. How much better than, than these guys can it be? And then what do you do with it? Like, how, you know, where do you take that song next? And why even? I mean, you know, is this, and do why? you go, is this song going to be, you write it and go, this song's going to be a hit. This is going to be on my album. This song's going to make it. It's going to get played on the radio. It's sure. that good. Yeah. You know? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, if you're lucky enough to, to have one of those, yeah, sometimes that, that happens. Um, I mean, they're wonderful. Again, sort of the, that's when the business part of music really comes into play and the people that you're connected to in terms of a label or a publisher or um, those types of things really help. Um, but I do find, too, and it, the trend now is most artists are writing, if not like, you know, co-writing. If you look at all the sort of major artists these days, even if they didn't totally necessarily co-write, there's a lot of money in the publishing part of things now, um, since records aren't selling as much, and mm -hmm. so the, the publishing has become very attractive. Mm -hmm. So more and more people are writing. So the artist is often in the room when mm -hmm. the writing is happening, as opposed to the writers, and then it gets pitched mm -hmm. to the artist. Oh. Oftentimes, the artist is actually there. So that's interesting. You know, contributing whatever they, they wow. contribute. Um, and that's a great way to, you know, get a cut because as an artist as as an artist well as a songwriter i'm talking more as a songwriter that way yeah yeah, yeah. but you're i mean you're you're writing yes. the songs and you're an artist yes i am as well mm -hmm. right and presumably you yeah. want to write all your own songs or yeah. at least co-write absolutely you know, that, them, right? that's definitely yeah i mean as a as a as a singer songwriter i want to make sure that yeah. i'm doing the songwriter part of it yeah okay mm -hmm. so you're saying so it goes to the business side so Sounds to me like maybe the cream doesn't necessarily rise to the top unless you're, you know, doing your business That's side of things, true. right? That's absolutely true. That's totally true. There's so many amazing songs that don't don't get there, you know? There's so many amazing artists that don't get there. Yeah. yeah. It's it's I mean, it's tough. It's a tough go. You know, yeah. you have to you have to work and work and work and and still feed your creative artist spirit and then you got to be in the right place at the right time, you know. And and I I've had moments of those nice things, which is why I'm still in the business. Mm -hmm. um, 
But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, where's the camera? I'm looking for more. <laughs> you know, I am, you know, we're all, everyone is. So, yeah, and, that, and that's part of that whole thing that what you're talking about right now is part of what Girls Who Believe is all about, um, which was a song, which I think we might have played that video, but I'm not well, sure. Well, if we haven't, we if will. If we haven't, we will, yes. And, and so Girls Who Believe is a song that I wrote because, I, you know, I, I grew up with family that was very supportive, teachers that were supportive, um, I had really great female mentors in terms of artists uh, that kind of knew who I was at a young age and mentored me along. And so that, that song is, is about that experience. And then the, the festival that we're here sort of promoting um, is, is about that. And we have a contest for a younger uh, girl all across Canada from age 8 to 16, and uh, she can open the festival. And so I really believe, I mean, I'm looking for people to sort of bring me along, but I, I believe you mm-hmm. sort of get that by doing, bringing others bringing along. Others along yeah. right? so, that's, so let's talk a little bit about, about this festival. Sure. Yeah. Okay. okay yeah. So the title. Girls Who Believe Fest. Why not? Right? Right. What <laughs> are they not? believing in and why? Well, uh, they're basically believing in yourself. I mean, that, that's the, that's the okay. simplest answer, I guess, yeah. for, for that. Um, yeah, I, I just think it's a, for me, music is my, was my dream, is my dream. And I've, like I said, had people who fostered that. And there, there have been many moments where it's been very difficult. And I've kept going because, you know, I have a little voice inside of me that says, yeah, mm-hmm. this is a good path for you. But also mm-hmm. I have other people around me that are encouraging me. And I just thought, man, if I didn't have those people... Like, if I for some reason didn't have those people, then maybe I wouldn't be pursuing this. And so I really wanted to create a group, an organization, a festival that could be that voice for other girls, specifically girls, um, whose dream perhaps isn't music, but it's whatever they want to be doing. I just think it's a really interesting concept that if you were supported to do what you felt was really your calling or what was in who you thought you should be, It'd be pretty amazing if everyone was doing what they really felt called to do. Mm -hmm. The world would be an entirely different place. Huge, because so there's you know life is really hard and it and I and realities come into play. I totally get that, but you know I've talked to a lot of through some of this girls who believe work. I've talked to a lot of eight nine year old girls, Mm -hmm. and they're at this amazing stage where they get it. They kind of know themselves. They sort of think they know what they want to do, and then it starts to. Wow, kind of eight or nine, yeah. You know, it, but then it, teenagehood starts to happen, and boys start becoming important, and all sorts of things play on on perhaps what they think they're able to do, and so I'm I'm really interested in that. So you, uh, so you're hoping to attract girls, uh, really girls, at a young age. Mm-hmm. Uh, what age bracket? Well, I mean, the contest was eight to sixteen, and we were, you know, asking them to submit an original mm-hmm. song. Um, and through some of my travels to Nashville, I've uh, became friends with and wrote a lot with uh, a group called the Stellas. They just won the CCMA Duo of the Year. And their daughters are Lennon and Maisie, who are on the show Nashville. And they're actually on the, performing on the Country Music Awards tonight. And they're great girls. And so they're our judges, mm-hmm. um, yeah. which is pretty fun. Yeah. And so they're actually judging right now. So they, mm-hmm. they've got all the entries, and they're picking the, the winner. Yes. And then she's going to be flown to Toronto and put up and we have a put up in a hotel and we have West 49 is doing all our wardrobe and benefits doing all the makeup and stuff. Wow. So she's going to have a little star treatment day. And then she gets to go to the fest at the great hall and open. 
This is wonderful. Yeah. Is it just one night or are you touring it's just it? just one or, night. Okay. Right now, it's, this is the second year. Um, so I, I like the touring concept, but uh, yeah, this, this one's, we're just doing the one night. And it's my, I'll be performing along with uh, Molly Thomason and also Ladies of the Canyon. Mm -hmm. And Ladies of the Canyon, uh, we're just on tour with Serena Ryder and they're going on tour with mm -hmm. Bare Naked Ladies uh, in the new year. So they're super awesome. And Molly is just a kick-ass girl who, uh, who worked recently with, with a producer friend of mine, uh, John Angus McDonald from The Trues. And so I got to know her music through that and she's... Awesome. Wow. Just like a bit of a different voice, a bit of a different look, and uh, super talented. So, yeah. This sounds amazing. Should be a good night. And I was going to ask you a little while back what you were hoping to achieve with your music, but I think maybe partially you answered that with the festival or the Girls Who Believe, but, uh, yeah. but maybe there's uh, another aspect. Well, I mean, I, the Girls Who Believe part is a huge one for me, and mm -hmm. I think it's going to be something that I do throughout my career. I hope that that's mm -hmm. what happens. Um, but, you know, I also went on tour with Big Sugar across mm -hmm. the country and sang in the rock band. And, you know, my shows are fun, too. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I, I want people to come and have a lot of fun. I'm a singer-songwriter, but we have a good time. It's, yeah. not, it's not precious and lovely. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's yeah. fun. So yeah. people can, like, drink and relax and talk to me. And, you know, I like all mm -hmm. that stuff, too. So it's a real balance. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the whole thing, I think, why I make music is because is I... I want to make that connection that's what's mm -hmm. interesting to me okay so yeah okay so it's on at the great hall it's on at the great hall so what's the date november 20th okay and, and uh what time does it start it starts doors are at 6 30 uh and it starts at 7 45 it's all ages which is cool so um you know you don't have to be 19 to come <laughs> and uh yes tickets are up on my website at meredithshaw.com uh, we're doing them through ticket break so people can find them okay so Tickets still available? Tickets are still available. You can get them in advance, or there are going to be some available um, at the door as well. Okay. But so for like a little bit more money, so you should get them in advance mm -hmm. if you want. Exactly. So <laughs> meredithshaw.com, they, yeah. can, they can get them there. And are you going to do it again go. next year? We are, yes. Okay. Absolutely. Now, this is going to be, this is an annual thing. And uh, how about, are you working on another uh, CD? Yeah. I just, um, I was signed to E1 Music Canada here uh, in Toronto, and we're doing a re-release of Trouble with um, a really cool remix of this tune with, um, I got Eon from Bedouin Sound Clash to remix it. So that's coming out December 10th. And then my new EP is coming out uh, in February, I think. Okay. Yeah. Well, great. Well, good luck with that and good Thank luck uh, with the uh, festival. Thanks. And uh, let us know how it goes next year. Yes, definitely. And now we're going to play the other video. Okay. Either well, whenever we didn't play before, we didn't we're going to play now. Great. So this is uh, Meredith Shaw. Thanks for coming in today. <laughs> Thank and, you for uh, having all me. All the best, and Thanks. we'll see you again. We're going to come back after this with uh, Kevin Annett from the International Tribunal for Crimes mm. of Church and State, a Nobel mm. Prize, uh, Peace Prize nominee. We'll be right back. Wow. Cool.
on the show. Uh, that was uh, Meredith Shaw and uh, now we're joined by Kevin Annett uh, who's uh, on his way to back to Vancouver from New York and Kevin the last time you were here on the show we were showing uh, what human bones that were dug up at a residential school in Brantford right? Possible human there weren't enough and they weren't big enough to say but uh, a forensic anthropologist in Washington said that he was 90% certain that they were human yeah. Okay so there's so much to talk about here. Yeah. Um, I mean, what you, you were what were you doing in New York? Just we're working, uh, and by we, I mean I work now with a tribunal that's based in 21 different countries, and it's unite survivors of uh, abuse within the church, child abuse, child trafficking. Uh, there's even a group now in New York that's uh, uniting survivors of satanic ritual abuse, uh, which is a very difficult subject because a lot of people don't come forward to talk about it and tends to be intergenerational within families and it's very well protected and hidden. But um, one of the things that we were documenting is how, th how widespread a lot of this stuff is. And um, I was working with a, an NGO at the United Nations who are attempting to bring this stuff to the General Assembly. And mm. in, in especially since uh, last May on our site, um, that's itccs.org, um, a woman in Holland described being part of these networks and she described some senior Catholic cardinals who were involved in these, at these sessions where children were, were harmed and even killed. So, I mean, there's criminal investigations going in, involved in this. I often say um, to people, well, we had a role in the, in the stepping down of Pope Ratzinger, Joseph Ratzinger and Pope Benedict last February because we did provide information to the Spanish government about the fact that Ratzinger had signed letters to bishops in America and Catholic bishops in America and Ireland, ordering them to cover up any evidence of child abuse. Mm -hmm. So in, engaged in, in a criminal act and expecting his clergy to go along with it. There, the, the Spanish government were on the verge of issuing an arrest warrant and the guy steps down, which was unusual, I mean, unprecedented in history for Pope to do that in peacetime. So, and nobody really put their finger on why he stepped down, right? Yeah, there was a lot of, it was covered in a lot of fog, uh, as you could expect, but uh, he's presently hiding out in, in the Vatican. Um, resisting extradition. Also, uh, a senior cardinal, Bart, uh, Tarsicio Bertoni, who is the chief secretary of state, uh, his secretary of state, he also stepped down. He had also been named in this indictment we put together uh, about him. So 
you know, when these top guys are, are stepping down while in office, it says a lot, you know. How do you feel about the new pope? Do you feel that he's going to, uh, that's a real change for the better? Well, like in any uh, damage control, they have to bring in somebody who says what people need to hear. Mm -hmm. And he's doing all that. Um, one of the most recent examples is on July 11th, he issued this apostolic letter. Mm -hmm. And in it, he actually reaffirmed the policy of the Vatican of criminalizing the reporting of child abuse. And uh, it's a policy called Crimen Solicitanus. It's been around since 1929. And it actually orders priests and bishops to cover up child abuse or be excommunicated. So, you know, keep the company secret. secret. Um, he affirmed that policy. So uh, at the same time saying that, uh, you know, church officials are not immune anymore when they do something wrong. And people have been pointing that to that as an example that he's trying to reform things. Well, the reality is, is that um, the, the Pope himself, this uh, Jorge Bogoglio, Pope Francis I, has been named by priests in Argentina as being involved in those things during the Dirty War in the 1970s, in, where he served as really a public relations guy for the Argentine dictatorship. He's already been named in a lawsuit in Argentina, in Argentina about that. So it's in his interest, personally, to uh, throw other people to the wolves, if you like, and uh, to take the heat off himself. I think that's part of what, what's happening with us. But I think the, the important thing to realize is that it's the institution we're talking about. They're policies which aid and abet child abuse. And that's the thing that people are more and more speaking out about. Does your organization uh, or the, the members in it face any pressure from, this is very sensitive work you're doing. Mm -hmm. Do you face any pressure from uh, others? All the external? time. All the time. Didn't uh, you get banned or turfed out well, uh, of yeah. the UK or something? Yeah, they, uh, they held me in an immigration prison two years ago and, at Stansted Airport and then deported me without a reason. Uh, I, was gonna, I was about to speak at a child abuse rally at Trafalgar Square. Um, whether or not that's connected, I'm not sure. But when you mention uh, people, there's six people in, our, in Vancouver alone, Aboriginal people, who I believe have died from foul play as a result of coming forward and naming. I mean, here's one of them. Bingo Dawson died in December uh, 2009. Um, he was beaten very badly by police uh, after he had been involved in church occupations. Uh, trying to find out what happened to uh, the children who died in residential school. And it's not unusual for this to happen to Aboriginal people in Canada. Uh, Vancouver actually has the highest number of people who die in prison in Canada, and they tend to be invariably Aboriginal people. The official cause of death was um, uh, that he had tuberculosis, wow. which is unusual because in residential school, they would always say that when the children died, they died of TB. Our work has shown that half the children who went to residential school never came back. Uh, they died there. People like um, Vicki Stewart, uh, she died at the United Church Residential School in April 1957 after being hit on the head her two sisters were an eyewitness. They hit her on the head, a woman called Ann Kaniski, uh, with a two-by-four because she was late coming into school. And she died the next day. They again said tuberculosis. When? When, when are we talking? April 1957 is when this happened. She was nine years old. Wow. Um, there, I mean, we, I've, over 18 years, I've documented hundreds of these stories. And it's frankly one of the reasons that the, uh, the government had to issue an apology and address this, because there were so many people coming out to affirm this. I've, we've actually got this now on a on DVD set, all the evidence. 
proving that Canada committed genocide deliberately. It wasn't just kind of random priests doing mm. And thank you so much for bringing these pictures and holding them up to the camera so we see that there were real people involved. And, and we know that, but you know, sometimes an issue becomes an issue. Yeah. And uh, we forget the individuals involved. I'm glad you said that. Thank you. Yeah. So how is the pursuit of justice in this regard going, Kevin? Within I Canada? Know, well, with the, let's start within Canada, and then yeah. we can go internationally. Well, the difficulty in Canada is that, uh, first of all, for years we tried in the court system to get this addressed, and courts in Canada continually said, we can't rule on whether the Crown and the Vatican committed genocide because the Crown cannot, Crown courts cannot indict the Crown, right? So they declare what, what's called, uh, it's beyond their jurisdictional competence to rule on genocide. So time and again, you saw in Canadian courts that they would address issues of physical and sexual assault on children, but not issues of genocide, of, a, of the death of children. Not one person in Canada has ever been tried for the death of a child in a residential school. Even though, you know, as far back as 1907, there were articles in the Canadian newspapers describing how half these children were dying every year. And, and you know, so that legal group is a dead end. And uh, that's why we went international and began to get other courts ruling on, which has happened. Canada has been found guilty of genocide in a common law court set up in Brussels last year. Um, and what's the upshot of that? Or, you know, well, so it, the court it, rules, then what happens? Well, it means that Stephen Harper could be arrested in another country for, for aiding and abetting, uh, uh, you know, the covering up of, of, of crimes against humanity. But how come he never gets arrested? Well, because heads of state don't tend to arrest each other. I mean, uh, it's only happened, it, the United Nations has a thing called the Convention on Genocide, passed in 1948, Canada signed it in 1952. A very fine document says, you know, all these things that happen in residential school are all genocide. You know, when you're taking kids from their homes, when you're sterilizing them, uh, which happened in Indian hospitals across the country, you know, savages were not allowed to breed. Uh, that happened right up to the 1980s in hospitals in Canada. Um, all those things that, that go on, uh, you know, that clear genocide. And, uh, but uh, only twice in history has the convention ever been applied in uh, Rwanda and in Serbia. Against uh, Now, those were political decisions because these countries all over the world have committed genocide. But mm -hmm. as a, a member uh, a few years ago when I was at the UN for the first time, a delegate there told me, well, we can't open the issue of genocide because who wants to open that can of worms? Because everybody's mean, all, guilty. Everybody, the United States, Britain, Holland, France, who didn't do it, right? So that's politically, I mean, they want to stay away from this. On the other hand, for the first time in history last year, an American Catholic bishop went to jail for covering up child abuse, William Lynn in Philadelphia. And so we know that courts are beginning to change. They're beginning to say, yeah, the heads of these churches can be held liable for, for clear crimes against humanity. So that's a, a positive move. Um, the, the big problem in Canada now is that the, the churches and government got together and formed this thing they called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which is like the serial rapist nominating the members of the jury. Um, you know, they, they, under the TRC mandate, you're not allowed to name names. Uh, you can't prosecute the churches they can't be held liable for anything. Um, so how are you gonna get any kind of truth out of that situation when the perpetrators are kind of arranging it? And I've had, we have interviews with native people who've been to these TRC functions. Their statements have to be vetted beforehand. Uh, they only have 10 minutes to speak and they can't name anything that really happened to them. So 
how people call that healing, I don't know, but uh, you need a real inquiry, and this is what we've been pushing for for many years, to get yeah. international bodies to come in. And as you mentioned, at Brantford, we already know there's, we've documented 28 mass grave sites in Canada. They're former residential schools where children are buried. We started excavating one of those in Brantford, the oldest one, the Anglican uh, church school there. Do you think the uh, Canadian population in general is aware enough of, of uh, what happened? No. What, what, what do you see possible? How can we remedy that? How can that be remedied? Well, education, I think it should be in the curriculum. I think in First Nations studies programs in grade 11 and 12, people should learn the real truth and not the sanitized truth, which is what you get now. Um, you can just take, you know, the, we've been trying to get these in the libraries and the school system because it has evidence that you'll never see elsewhere. Like, for example, we found a document showing that the very first year the residential school opened in the West in 1889, children... 40% of them died that one year. Now, why would nearly half the kids die in the first year? Mm -hmm. And then 50 years later, you see the same death rate. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not random, you know, acts. That, that's a, and as a matter of fact, there was a Dr. Peter Bryce who worked for Indian Affairs. In 1909, he wrote a report. Mm -hmm. This is the top medical officer for Indian Affairs. He says, I believe the conditions are being deliberately created to spread infectious disease in these schools. And he called it a national crime because they take healthy children put them in the same dorm with kids dying of TB and lock the door and never treat them. And that's what you do when you want to depopulate an area and get the lands and resources. I mean, they do it all over the world. This is not unusual. It sounds, you know? okay, so, but was there, it, it sounds so unbelievable, especially for the churches to be doing this. Yeah, I found Kevin. it unbelievable. Uh, I was raised in the United Church and I had no knowledge of this until the eyewitnesses start coming to you. You How did you get it. involved? What was the impetus? The hard way. Uh, I was a United Church minister in Port Alberni on the West Coast, and I began to open my pulpit mm -hmm. to people to come in and speak, uh, Native people who had survived mm -hmm. the schools. Now, this is before the lawsuits began in 1996. So the churches at the time, I remember the, when the, the official, uh, one of the local presbytery officials came to me and he said, you know, you can't believe what these Indians are telling you because they're just angry at us because we took their land. They're just making up all, all this stuff about the residential school. No children ever died there. Mm -hmm. Well, the other day, the, the TRC announced that, well, okay, we're admitting that three or four to 4,000 died. They've gotten to that point where they're admitting children died. But then they also say, but the records were, they stopped keeping records about this in 1917. So he's saying over a 30-year period, mm -hmm. three to 4,000 died. The reality is it's much higher. Mm -hmm. And... Um, they, they didn't like the fact that, that was, I was beginning to bring that out. So two and a half years later, I was fired summarily. Like Kevin. Oh. Defrocked. I mean, the whole gamut, would you put whistleblowers through? And, and, this, and, was, and, and uh, you then joined the, is it the International Tribunal? That came later. That, that came, came later. many years later. I, I worked, uh, it started for me, I went back to Vancouver. Mm -hmm. My family broke up over that. My wife mm -hmm. left, mm -hmm. and the church actually helped her in her divorce. Mm -hmm. uh, they were doing everything possible to, to, to quiet, to keep this under wraps at the time. Um, and, you know, losing custody of my two daughters. Mm -hmm. I went down to the healing circles, and... Um, we had a commonality of pain there, mm -hmm. what it was like. And so people trusted me more, also because I'd been booted out of the church, so kind of my trust level went up. Mm -hmm. But um, that's how it started in the Vancouver Healing Circles. We held a tribunal in 1998 where we brought in a UN group mm -hmm. to look at all this stuff. Um, the government responded quickly after that with the Aboriginal Healing Fund, and they began to have limited compensation for some of this. So it's been, we've continued to provoke uh, responses, and that eventually led to the apology in, in 2008. Mm -hmm. But again, that was a very limited, restricted kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Where do you think the, like if this, this has been going on for 100 years or, or longer, 
that the churches have been doing this. But, I mean, where did the impulse come? Was it was this directed from on high, do you think? Because just, you know, take yourself as an example. As a United Church minister, if you were in that situation, I don't think you can see yourself, and I can't see you, uh, able to, to put up with that. Nope. Like you, because it, it takes an institutional, you know, a lot of people, yeah. uh, in a sense, conspiring to to do this these horrendous acts. Well, all you need to do is look the other way, and that's, uh, you know, the, there were people in my congregation whose parents who had worked in residential schools. I remember the first time I allowed a native person to speak from the pulpit. This a man was talking about his best friend who had died, uh, being killed in the school and buried in the hills behind. Port Alberni Residential School, several people got up and left the church right in the middle of the service. One of them was the daughter of the residential school principal who they were referring to. Yeah. And so, yeah, it, this stuff comes from a whole history. It isn't just start in Canada. It, it, you know, you can trace one of their sources to the, the, the laws passed, the papal laws in the 1400s that said um, if people aren't Catholic, they don't have the right to live because they don't have souls mm -hmm. and their land is forfeited. Uh, Tara, uh, you know, there was this... They weren't Catholic. Who weren't Catholic, okay. like anyone, and it applied to my ancestors too, who mm -hmm. were Huguenots in France, mm -hmm. who had to get out of there because they went after us because we were French Protestants. Right? So it wasn't, and, and of course it wasn't just the Catholics who did that. The Protestant churches were very involved as well in, in this stuff. But uh, it, the attitude was that you don't have the right to exist. You don't have the right to your own land. That's an old philosophy in, in European Christian mm -hmm. history, you know. And, uh, I mean, I found it fascinating in one of our previous discussions, too, that you mentioned that there, uh, that even the United Church and, and, and all, probably all the Protestant churches even still send money, and the Canadian government even sends money to the Vatican. Yeah, there's a thing called the um, financial, their financial concordat. So concordat is any agreement between the Vatican and a government. And... Um, the financial concordats actually siphon uh, taxpayers' money directly to the Vatican Bank. There's over 100 countries that do that, including Canada. The Catholic vote is pretty important, you know, Quebec and everything, and so they, it's one of the levers they have. But um, this has uh, gone on for a long time, and in fact, there's a good website, uh, concordatwatch.eu, that's documented this. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's not that the evidence isn't out there. It's a question of people say, well, are we going to take on the Pope? I, I don't think you have that worry anymore because these guys are on the defensive. I mean, mm -hmm. they know. I think my story proves that when you're standing on truth, all you have to do is keep doing that. Mm -hmm. And you have mm -hmm. an enormous power in the world, uh, despite everything thrown at you. Right? Mm -hmm. And our First Nations people, uh, I'm so much in awe and respect of them, and I, I feel a tremendous love for them because they, have, they carry so much wisdom that we need, and somehow a lot of this wisdom has managed to survive against all odds. And uh, a lot of the uh, current leaders, for example, I'm just thinking of Dave Korshen, I don't know if you know him, at uh, Turtle Lodge, no. north of Winnipeg. Uh, I was honored to be on his reserve for a couple of, uh, on two occasions, to do some volunteer work and uh, or attend a function also. And the stories that came up from people talking about how the residential schools had affected them 
one after one after the other uh, coming up to the mic and seeing how that had affected them and, and how that still reverberates through the entire population. And then on the other hand, they were opening this up to people of all nationalities and welcoming anybody into the healing circle and showing such forgiveness and uh, basically saying we all need to heal together, which I just thought was so generous. And Yeah, I often hear that in the all over. I mean, I go all over the world now, and you hear that. Um, it's almost like, um, you know, I find this with Aboriginal people in Canada that there's been such a long history of, if you even open your mouth, even in your own community, that's it. You can't, there's been enormous pressure to stop this. This generation that's coming along now doesn't seem to have that dysfunction and, 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 and horrible, crushed feeling that you had when you went through or if your parents went through. A lot of the people I work with on the streets of Vancouver were never in a residential school, but they have all the symptoms, that intergenerational trauma, right? The reality is if the government or the, the system around you is still discriminated against you, it's hard to know that you're going to be heard or even supported. Um, the Indian Act of Canada is a document that shouldn't be in place. It's, it's a law that violates the Human Rights Convention. It's mm -hmm. race-based legislation saying that if you live on reserve, you're a ward of the state. You're not even a citizen. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, um, as long as you have that system in place, you, it, it's not a level playing field, it's not a position of equality. And, and so it's fine to talk about healing, but really it's a question of getting off people's backs to allow that. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first thing is, and you know, I remember once we, uh, we had a, one of our peaceful occupations, we went into the Anglican Church headquarters in Vancouver. I remember the woman being very angry and saying, well, what do you people want anyway? And I just said to her, well, if your child died in a facility, what would you want? You want to know where they're buried. You want to bring them home for proper burial. You want to know who's responsible for they, they could be some kind of judgment or, or trial or something so it wouldn't happen again. That's all people want, but mm -hmm. it's not an apology and a bit of money. I mean, mm -hmm. what does that do? It's not even legal to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, for the perpetrators to set up a system of compensation, that's, that's a no-no under international law. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we have to just kind of take that blinder off we have that, that, that they are in a different category. That, that this is Canada's... Uh, in a very dicey position for having set up this Truth and Reconciliation Commission because they're, they're absolving themselves of a crime. And that's not, that's not on. I mean, that, that in itself is, is a, an obstruction of justice. Mm -hmm. So do you think that was the intention of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission? Or do you think it just kind of went, you know, it was started with good intentions, but then it kind of went astray? Well, missionaries went in with good intentions, too. It's always cast in terms of good intentions. We have to save these people from themselves. But uh, no, the TRC mandate from the beginning, if you look at trc.ca and then go to section two, it's just, and that's been there from the beginning, their mandate is clearly to allow a forum for people to speak, but they cannot use any of that stuff, take it down as evidence. Mm -hmm. So it's not a legal body, it's not a, it's not a body that can do anything. It's like a, a way for people to kind of let off some steam, but there's no consequence. Mm -hmm. you know, and that's why I remember um, time and again I hear this from people. And most of the natives I work with are urban, Aboriginal. They live on the street. They, they're not plugged into the government money or anything. And they keep saying, you know, it's worse now after the apology because everyone thinks it's resolved. It's so and they say, hey, you're healed now. Here, take a $2,000 and get better. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's so... I, you know, it's worse when, when the money, the healing money started to come into the downtown inside of Vancouver. The alcoholism and the drug 
death from drugs spiked. Wow. Because you don't hand people money when you're in that situation, yet the government's known for years it has that effect, and yet it keeps happening. Okay, so you're in Toronto. How long are you in Toronto for, Kevin, and are you doing uh, anything in town? Well, I'm, I've, I was just down in Kitchener and Brantford again, continuing that work, and I'm coming back in January to, like you mentioned, a big part of this education is to get this out into the mainstream, to get this information, not only in the schools, but... Uh, you know, get it right talked about in, in Parliament, saying, you know, we have to find a way to really change things. Mm -hmm. uh, the first step, and, and a lot of what I'm doing, is um, starting a repatriation program for the remains of these children. And when we can do that, I mean, we've documented the eyewitness testimonies, the documents, the forensic proof is what you finally need. Mm -hmm. We began to surface that in Brantford, but when people look at those remains, it can't be denied anymore, mm -hmm. and there has to be not just healing, but justice done. Mm -hmm. And uh, we need a war crimes trial in Canada. I mean, that's how it, Germans were able mm -hmm. to deal with their own guilt and shame. Mm -hmm. And I think that that would be a real healing if we began to do that. I think so too. But if we do that, then we should do it everywhere. War crimes. But it has to begin somewhere. Yeah. Start in your backyard. Yeah. There's, mm -hmm. in, in around Toronto, there's three or four spots where there were residential schools and uh, you know I always I never invited myself into the native community you got to be wait to be invited mm -hmm. uh, and my work is really with my own people now mm -hmm. taking responsibility mm -hmm. um, and and so there's lots we can do but it's got to be also in the terms of the people that we've done it to and not not our agenda yes. which is really yeah. important right? yes okay Kevin so um, what else should we tell people people can get in touch people can yeah. help yeah, educate yourself first. Uh, ITCCS.org is the tribunal website. And you can see all of this evidence that it's really 20 years' work of uh, this evidence. It's up online, hiddennolonger.com. And on this, which I'll leave with you, uh, and feel free to make copies of that. Uh, Thank you. And write to me uh, at hiddenfromhistory1, number one, hiddenfromhistory1 at gmail.com. And uh, be happy to come and speak in your community. Oh, that's wonderful. And how is this all funded? Community funded. Totally. Donations, donations. from the individuals. Yeah, we never received money from any government or church body on principle, mm -hmm. just to keep it an independent inquiry. So people can contribute on those websites? Yeah, <coughs> itccs.org, there's a PayPal button. Okay. Yep. Okay, Kevin, thanks for uh, coming in. Good thank to see you, you again. Thank you for uh, having me on. I appreciate it. And thank you for doing your work. And we've got a video, Kevin. It's about... It's, uh, Something I picked up from YouTube, endorsements of ITCCS. I thought we could play that sure. just to give people a little bit of a taste. Thank uh, you. And uh, we're going to come back right after this with uh, Sean Dalton as Liquid Lunch continues. My name is Cheryl Squire. I'm a Mohawk and I'm from the Turtle Clan. Um, I just want to talk a little bit about what, what happened here and how this all got going and why uh, Kevin was asked to come and help us. People have are suffering and living in poverty and I'm well aware of this because I've been um, working at the Children's Aid Society for the past 15 years. I see all the effects of the residential schools and how it filters like from one generation to another uh, and there's a lot of other things that are intertwined with this. Um, 
Uh, we asked Kevin to uh, come and help us because he's known to us because of everything he's done for our people. For, he's been into this for 18 years. I've read his books, I've watched the documentaries that he's made, and um, Kevin knows a lot about all the abuse that uh, our people have suffered because of the government and the churches. We have proof that, that we've always heard that they killed a lot of our children here, and, and we have proof that they have done it. So we know it has to be done properly, so we're, we'll be bringing in um, trained archeologists um, to do more uh, investigating, and I just think that people that did this should be brought to justice. So we're talking the Anglican Church and the government? Yes, the, the churches and the government. The Why do you think they're sitting on the evidence? I know the Anglican Church has boxes of documents about the mushroom they, they won't release. Uh, because they, they don't want our people to know uh, everything they did to us and, and all the abuse that they've inflicted on us over the years. So, and they're also trying to stop yourself from, from letting people know that, you know, what they've done to us. Um, it's just insane, like, you don't murder children and get away with it. And I work every day to protect children, and it just really bothers me that, that so many of our children have been killed. And, and nothing's ever been done about it. Like, you read about it, and, and there's information on it all over the place, but nothing's ever been done about it. So. Why should these people, the churches and the government and Indian Affairs were all in on this as well, why should they get away with killing our children? It's just not right and something needs to be done about it. Is that okay if I show this, like you want this message to get out to the world, so is it okay if I show this? Uh, yes I do, I, I want the, the world to know like well, what they've done to us and they're still doing it. I want to see Canada charged with genocide. Okay to come here to our Grand River territory and support the Kanyakehaga people here, along with our good friend Kevin Annette Hogwicks, the one at Satsde. As the work that they're doing to reveal the truth about what happened to the poor children at the Mohawk Institute Residential School, we see that uh, Kevin Annette is working really uh, closely with the people here as we have with Kevin in the past. We trust you. We, we come here in solidarity with you and uh, offer our protection and our support through this process. And so long as you're on the path of righteousness to expose the truth and to maintain the balance of our original treaty and peace treaty, the two real wampum. So we support that uh, your initiative with the International Tribunal into uh, church and state. Anything that you can do to help expose the truth in a peaceful manner that we, we will support you on your path. We also offer uh, our support as well if you need us, uh, our physical support here, wherever we can get to, to help you, you just let us know and we'll come to you. And you always have a place to stay if you're ever in our territory in Gondomage. You're welcome to stay with us in our home. It's chilly in here. Okay, we're back here on the show. And uh, yes, it's a little chilly in here. It's uh, winter's coming on and... Uh, 
Sean Dalton is joining us once again here on the show. Sean, always great to have you on. Hi. Hi. Now we're talking about a subject that uh, we haven't really talked too much about, except to make some jokes here on the station. Uh, that's the Quebec Charter, uh, uh, which is, uh, you know, Every, everybody in the country is talking about it in, yeah. in one way or another. It's ironic. They did a poll, and even people outside Quebec support it. And there's even the Center for Immigration Policy Reform says Quebec's concerns are all Canadians' concerns. So they even came out in support of it in some way. Like they said that, um, you know, they have similar concerns. And I'm going to read you guys some of the things that have popped up in some of the different mm -hmm. newspapers. Uh, you guys read the Globe and Mail? No, wait a sec. Are you supporting the Quebec Charter? I am, actually. Okay, because a, a lot of people, most people that I know are somewhat critical of it. I understand why they're doing it. It's, Europe's problems are having a spillover effect into Quebec, like France. Things that are happening in France affect the Quebec diaspora, because they all speak French and they all, they, 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 they spent a long time trying to get the church out of their lives. Like the church had a very... Where, in Quebec? Well, in France, right? Like they had a very, <laughs> um, like, they had La Cité, which separated church and state, right? Like to prevent the encroachment of the church on, the, uh, on people's lives. Well, when you think about Quebec, too, uh, in, in the course of one generation, it went from being a very uh, church-centered society with the, 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 the church, the most prominent building in every town in Quebec, mm -hmm. to being the most non-religious yeah, uh, province in the country. And that's, that was from one extreme to another, and that happens sometimes. Yeah. It's called the elastic band theory, I call it. Yeah. It's like when you, like, I was raised to believe I was a global citizen, and now that I've got a huge library on Canadian history, I can proudly say I'm a Canadian citizen because I know enough about the country's history, and I know where I fit in, into it. I feel mm -hmm. like I'm a big part of it. But as we Wait, learned the last time you were on the show, all that, the, 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 the country's being trashed. It is. It's right? being uh, socially engineered away, mm -hmm. and that's the reason Quebec... Charter has such, such widespread support because people feel a sense of um, culture, identity, and narrative, and they also feel that they're losing. Okay. All right. So you got some articles here, but I am interested because I really have not heard about the support outside of Quebec for the Charter. The, the could Quebec you actually charter. summarize the Charter for us uh, in a few sentences, if Absolutely. you could? Absolutely. Um, I was going to read uh, a section from this article, if I may. Is that yes. okay with you guys? called Quebec Secular Divide, Saturday, August 31st, 2013, in the Section Insights. I'll read you some of the selected What stuff. paper is this from? The Globe and Mail. Okay. The end of August. A charter of Quebec values, leaked details say the PQ wants to ban, wants the ban of religious symbols in the public service to apply to everyone from driving instructors to nurses to teachers to secretaries in municipal government offices. All to underscore what it deems the fundamental value the state's religious neutrality, neutrality. The ban risks creating a second class of citizens who are excluded from working for the province's largest employer. And later in this debate, I will read a section from Lowell Green's book, Mayday Mayday, to show how Trudeau's multicultural policy created a second set of Canadian citizens, hyphenated citizens, mm -hmm. by denying them a shared sense of values. Public support. But a funny thing happened while the condemnation was brewing and spilling over. Opinion polls came out showing strong public support, particularly among Quebec's francophone majority. The only case of a public servant seeking a faith-based uniform change in the exhaustive Bouchard-Taylor report was that of a Sikh Mountie Staff Sergeant, Baljeet Singh Dillon, who was granted permission to wear a turban instead of a Stetson. 
appearance of neutrality. The move to ban religion from public service doesn't come out of the blue. It has been championed in recent years by groups like Quebec's Counter for Status of Women and the Syndicate de la Fondation Publique du Québec, a 42,000 member public sector union. Quote, for the public service to be neutral, there has to be the appearance of neutrality, wrote Daniel Burrell, head of the Quebec secular movement in Montreal's Le Devoir. A state that declares itself secular and then leaves its employees free to promote their religious belief, it's like a restaurant that declares itself non-smoking, but leaves those who work there free to smoke. I guess that's kind of a comical contradiction. The public sector union, meanwhile, was an early supporter of the PQ secular charter, one that gave no hint about the coming controversy when it was proposed in last year's election campaign. Now everyone's talking about it, of course. This is why we're doing this. Union Vice President Maurice Bourousseau said the need for it was highlighted at the time by the latest reasonable accommodation outrage. The provincial body that tests new drivers and issues license app apparently allowed people to deal with a man rather than a woman in the name of religious preference. So you get elements of gender discrimination creeping into the Quebec society, and they are saying, enough, it's too much. Gender equality is a Canadian value. It transcends faiths. It transcends mm -hmm. ethnicities. So, so um, how was that cultural bias? Well, uh, when someone asks in? for um, a male driver instead of a female, and you're taking a test, you don't have a damn choice. You're dealing with the government. You should respect whoever is going to issue the test, mm -hmm. whether they're a man or a woman. If you want, you mean the, the, you mean the, the 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 people taking the test yeah. were asking for a male or female? Yeah, absolutely. Test they're asking for a male, instructor. and not a, they don't want a woman, you know, teaching them. So, you know, that's. That's an insult to Canadian culture and, and identity. And they're doing that under the... The uh, guise of tolerance. Right. It's like, oh, we're multicultural, so you have to respect our way of life. And, the, you know, basically, yeah. people are fed up with it. Costs and risks, this is the last part of it. Belgium and France are the two most prominent examples of countries that ban religious displays in the public service. In Belgium, it is limited to certain positions with visi visibility or authority, such as police and judges. If you send police out to the public and they're wearing burqas and you can't see who the hell they are and you don't know they're police, that's going to create lots of confusion. Mm -hmm. It's going to cause disorder and chaos and madness. It's just, just one example of an extreme situation which could result if you gave all the people the right to promote their own you know, religion in, in, uh, for government mm -hmm. workers. In France, the apparent model for the Quebec plan, the prohibition is absolute and is premised on a current of secularism that dates back to at least to the tyranny that preceded the French Revolution. So this does come from France a long time ago, Quebec's attitude towards, um, they don't feel like they should accommodate anybody. Mm -hmm. And this has caused an interesting um, situation for the NDP, because the NDP has 59 of their seats in Quebec out of the 102 total. Mm -hmm. And this article was written, Canadian politics in the South Asian generation times uh, on page four, and it was, September 26, 2013, so near the end of September. This, the first article was at the end of August. It says, NDP leader Thomas Mulcair needs to explain the recent contradictory comments of his federal MP on the Parti Québécois Charter of Values proposal. Last week during an interview with Radio Canada, NDP MP Francois Pilon came out completely in favor of banning the wearing of religious symbols in the public sector. And I think this is the reason why um, one of the authors of, of a book on Stephen Harper predicts that um, the NDP might lose 20 to 30 seats in the next mm -hmm. election. You can see how it's already splitting the NDP narrative. Mm -hmm. What should we do? Well, we've got all these seats in Quebec. We've got 59 of the 65. Mm -hmm. We need to keep these seats as a beachhead to kind of build support. But still. And it's kind of like a Trojan horse. It's kind of like their Waterloo. Now they're mm -hmm. trapped in Quebec. Well, you know, the ch I, I, I thought that those are, those are going to be tough seats to hold on to. 
I mean, I it's don't Quebec, think that... Quebec's, the Quebec people are very nationalistic <clears throat> people, and they, they change their mind often. They create new political parties. They have a habit of doing it. Like the Albertans, they created the Wild Rose Alliance. Now they're in opposition to Redford's Tories. And they're using the same tactics Harper used on Trudeau and the NDP to try to, you know, so mm -hmm. it's kind of a healthy thing to have democracy. Speaking to Montreal's 98.5 FM on September 17th, another NDP MP, Alexandre Boularis, dodged the question and refused to condemn the PQ proposal, which would discriminate against provincial employees wearing articles of faith, such as crosses, kirpans, turbans, and hijabs. Quote, the position for the moment, I would say, is to look at what members of the National Assembly are doing, Boularis said. Uh, despite being told by radio host Paul Arkin that what he was saying is not what Mr. Mulcair told us, told us. Buller, Bulleris avoided taking a position on the party Québécois. So he's kind of stuck between a, uh, an awkward position. Like uh, one, they have 59 seats in Quebec. Public, public poll says this charter values is, is popular. So what do you do if you're the NDP? And most of your support, more than half your support's in La Belle Province. Well, for now. Yeah, for now. That, we know that's not going to last. Um, this article was Sadly. in the Globe and Mail newspaper, Friday, October 4th, so the next month, of course, mm -hmm. which month, which is the month we're in. Former Premier Jacques Parizeau, he came out. He attributed public support for the PQ's plan to ban religious headgear in the public service to fear of Islamic extremism. Quote, it's understandable, he wrote, about the only contact most Quebecers have had with the Islamic world is through images of violence repeated over and over, wars, riots, bombs, the attack on the World Trade Center, and the Boston Marathon, he wrote. He also parts ways with Ms. Merwa on the crucifix in the National Assembly. Mr. Perizzo says it should come down. Uh, it's ironic it's still up. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's still up for tradition. Like, they want to have some semblance of cultural heritage, even if it's just symbol, symbolic, and it's not, you know. Well, I think, Sean, if I think really, they, they can't say we don't want hijabs, and they, they can't just come out and say we want to get rid of all the Islamic symbols. symbols. You know, I think they probably would love to keep the crucifix. I read in the Koran that the, that the veil is meant to keep, to ward off male aggression. Yeah. And if they don't wear that thing, they deserve what they get, including, you know, sexual assault or rape. So I think they should ban symbols of gender discrimination, such as the headscarf or the hijab, because I find it a discrimination, I find it a defense to my cultural heritage, my Canadian sense of identity, because I include gender equality, non-negotiable. It's just a part of just the part of the way of life that I have. And if people want to mm -hmm. fight against it, I'm completely willing to debate these people mm -hmm. on these things. I'm willing to defend it, because I was raised by very um, strong, I have a lot, a lot of strong females in my family. Mm -hmm. My mom, my aunts, my cousins, and they'll be damned if they're gonna be told what to wear, how to think, how to feel, or mm -hmm. you know, what, 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 what careers to pursue. We're not going back to the 1950s. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's over. Like, if people want to recreate that narrative, they should do it in the home country and not come here and try to you know, create situations where men and women are not equal, or at least treated equally in the eyes of uh, Canadian citizens. And I feel very strongly about that. And I've analyzed this for quite a while. And here's the rest of it. Um, Mr. Parizeau carries his own baggage when it comes to ethnic groups in Quebec. This is where he's a little bit hypocritical. He remembered, he's remembered for blaming, quote, money in the ethnic vote after the yes side's razor-thin referendum loss in 95. So, shows you what he knows, right? Jacques Perizzo, hypocritical? Yeah. <laughs> and remember you, you and Sandra in the two debates before brought up the, the turban issue, the Quebec soccer? Yes. Okay, we're going to get to that a little later. I would like to read a section from the 2010 book, 
Luol Green, Mayday, Mayday, Curb Immigration, Stop Multiculturalism, where it's the end of the Canada we know. He's on 10, 10 Talk Radio, News Talk 1010. This was a best-selling book. Okay. So, um, okay, this chapter is called English Canada's Loss, Quebec's Game. Before I leave the matter of our multicultural policy, there is one more fact that must be examined. Throughout this book, I have repeatedly referred to the fact that Trudeau and other self-annoyed, quote, progressives claim that only Quebec has the language and culture worth preserving. Everyone knows the great lengths to which the province has gone in order to preserve and enhance the, quote, French fact. Bill 101, language police, referendums, and the exodus of dozens of head offices and industries, along with about 750,000 angles, are just a small part of it. All of it to strengthen the French language and the Quebecois culture, which today is more firmly entrenched than at any other time since Confederation. The efforts and the sacrifices of the rest of the country have obviously served Quebec's cultural interests very well. Uh, Trudeau, Mulroney, Chrétien, Dion, Martin, Trudeau, Jr., Mulcair, all from Quebec. Harper's the only non-French leader. So that's the last three decades of French leadership. No, wait created. a second. Paul Martin wasn't French. He was. He was from Quebec. He was French. He was Paul Quebec. Martin. He was. I know. I looked that. into it. I found out he was. I, was. I wasn't sure about that either. But there's something else that has happened is has helped to strengthen Quebec and the Quebecois culture. Something few others seem to have noticed. Just two more pages. Multiculturalism. Think of it, please. While Quebec's exclusive right to, to select only Francophone immigrants has steadily enhanced Quebec's national identity, English Canada continues to be weakened through the creation of dozens of hyphenated groups. I just read the Greek newspaper yesterday. It was all about Greece. There was almost nothing about Canada unless it was a, a person of Greek origin who had done something significant. And all the ethnic newspapers, are, most of them are very similar to that narrative. The South Asian Times focuses on India. The, um, you know, the Epoch Times focuses on China with a Chinese you know, view. There's, very, there's maybe one or two pages on Canadian issues. Mm -hmm. you know, it's supposed to be Canadian paper. It's written in English, so I read it. But I've noticed these things. Mm -hmm. Almost everyone in Quebec, including recently arrived immigrants, is Quebecois. There is no such thing as an Italian Quebecois, no Greek Quebecois, no hyphens in Quebec. Make no mistake about it. But in English Canada, you are Chinese Canadian, Indo Canadian, Somali Canadian, Tamil Canadian, and of course, French Canadian. Hyphens all over the place because in English Canada, the Canadian indicates only citizenship, not ethnicity. So while Quebec becomes even more homogenous, more francophone, and more monoculture each day, English Canada becomes more divided, less homogenous, less English. Uh, and English Canada, the English language is declining in Canada overall. It was 62.5% of citizens in 2001. It was 60% in 2006 when the five-year census was released. It's down to 58% at the end of 2011. And the French language is dying in Montreal, and the English language is dying in Surrey and in Victoria. So those will be Chinese-speaking cities. That's the consequences of Trudeau's multicultural policy. You're going to get silos so large, they're just going to replace English language with these other languages, and you're going to get little mini-countries in Canada. Well, we know it's because the international globalists are trying to destroy the best country in the world. It, it might be part of it, Hugh. I can't prove these conspiracy theories, but something definitely is not right. It's like it's, 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 not, it's not the way it's supposed to be. When you go to someone else's country, you have to learn the language, <clears throat> make an attempt to get an education, join the mainstream. You don't have to look like me. At least speak my language and share my values, right? Well, it's growing pains also of a world that's coming together, you know, with our uh, coming together in terms of... Uh, different nationalities being able to live in countries other than those of their origin, which wasn't really the case not too long ago. Yeah, so there's all, certain growing pains associated with if, that. If you, absolutely. If you look at all the countries that have failed, countries that didn't have a core, core identity, Sri Lanka, you got the Tamils versus the Sinhalese, Lebanon, which used to be called Jewel of the Arab World, 
and East and West Pakistan. It was all based on language and culture, and they, they, they killed each other until they had new countries and new borders, or there was a mass exodus of people because just no one could get along, and that's why a lot of them are failed states today. You know? Quebec is using immigration to strengthen and enhance its national identity, while the rest of the country is using immigration to eliminate the national identity of English-speaking Canada. Here's something to think about. Every day, Quebec grows stronger as a separate, distinct French society. Every day, the rest of Canada grows weaker as a distinct English society. The, quote, progressives believe this to be a wonderful thing, apparently. Have they never given any thought as to where all this is the most recently going to end? In his book, Who Gets In? What's Wrong with Canada's Immigration Program and How to Fix It? Daniel Stofman writes, a senior bureaucrat in the immigration department once told me he had to train all new English-Canadian immigrant ministers not to use the phrase nation of immigrants. Well, in Quebec, because it doesn't play well there, Quebecois thinks of themselves as a nation of Quebecois and not as a nation of immigrants. To Quebecers, the phrase nation of immigrants refers to English Canada, which lacks a dominant ethnicity. Or if, if, if it exists, it's been buried under piles of social engineering. I consider Canadian culture, uh, the English language, basketball, baseball, hockey, gender equality, uh, skating, skiing, you know, fishing, canoeing, uh, you know, our writers, our poets. Like, these, are all, these all exist, they're just not promoted and shared. So they get buried in the, uh, in the apologies that just come out of the, uh, the political elite, who have just buried it under mounds of social engineering and political correctness. They're there, you know, there's lots of great you know, rock musicians and writers. If we promoted them a little bit more, maybe we'd be a little more proud of them because we know actually who they are. So what is your ideal scenario, Sean? How would you like to see Canada describe itself and the people who live here? We should definitely be proud of our heritage mm -hmm. and share that with new citizens. And we should definitely study the good and the bad parts about it so we all become more united, cohesive uh, citizens. So we all, all have a sense of shared values. You know, we should you know, talk about how Canada was 50 years ago, then 100 years ago, because we're not the same country. We evolved, we changed, we made mistakes. We try to fix it. We've still got problems. Those should be fixed too, or at least worked on. You know, progressiveness is a big part of it. Uh, but you don't think that all this that is happening is just a part of the growing pains associated in trying to do that, or no? There's a war against um, the unity of this country for many reasons. A lot of it has to do with cheap labor. A lot of it has to do with um, you know, university or college professors who try to re-engineer what Canadian history, how it's taught or how it's interpreted. And there's, there's goals in place. Like, there's, there's very sinister, uh, there's a very sinister endgame going on. Like, I read about it in the paper, like, quite, quite a bit. Like, they're, they're literally trying to make people feel like home is somewhere else. That it's across the pond somewhere. In Europe or in Africa or in Asia or the Middle East. The point is, when you leave a country and you go somewhere else, it's new. There's a new language, there's new food, there's a new way of life, there's a new education system. Take advantage of those things. Those are great things. Mm -hmm. You moved for a reason. You want to take advantage of what society has to offer. You don't want to recreate the country where you came from. You, know, you left for a reason. You know? Most people did anyway. Mm -hmm. you know? And this is the end of it. Stofman is one of the few Canadians to recognize how multiculturalism has weakened English Canada while strengthening Quebec. Quote, by dividing Canadians outside Quebec into dozens of hyphenated groups, he says, multiculturalism amounted to a systematic attempt uh, to eliminate the national identity of English-speaking Canada while Quebec national identity has been reinforced. So that's the end of, um, that's the end of that. Okay. There's Don't have too much time left, Sean, but let's yeah, make your, you know, let's get to the, the meat of okay. your argument here. Well, I, I, I got a, an article from the, um, the South Asian Times, which is August 22nd, 2013. It's an interview. This article is called Visible Minorities Have a Major Impact in Society. Um, Rajni Tik 
Rewal, a barrister and solicitor, is the founder of Rajni Tikrewal Law Office in Toronto, Ontario. She practices in the fields of corporate law, real estate, family law, child protection, and wills and estates. Currently, Rajni is the corporate secretary and director of the Indo-Canada Chamber of Commerce. That was started up in 2013 and 14. Um, in the year 2002, we, this is what she said, in the year 2002, we decided to give a better life to our children and migrated to Canada. At the time, I was practice, a practicing lawyer in India and specializing in corporate law, so she came here for a better life. Um, they asked me some questions. Do you think the South Asian community has come together as a community here in Canada? And here's what she said. Here we have come together as a community. The feeling is of having a bigger family. For example, we are closely associated with a social organization named Rajasthan Association of North America Canada, which is more widely known as RANA Canada. It was only after we came to Canada and got connected with RANA that my children came to know about the culture of Rajasthan and grew to love it. Um, this is not just about associations and is not only about keeping the culture alive, it is about the bond you share being a South Asian. You forget that you are Gujarati, Punjabi, Rajasthan, or Bengali. You forget that you are Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi or Sri Lankan. You just remember that you are South Asian and that is what matters most. Um, would you call yourself a Canadian or an Indo-Canadian? I am and always will remain an Indo-Canadian. We are definitely enjoying our lives here, but our hearts are still in India and will always remain there. But that could also be said to be typical of a first generation, uh, you know, somebody who's come here who was born in another country. They know they've come here for another life and to seek a better uh, uh, livelihood, maybe for themselves and their children. Uh, but it does take some time to, uh, you know, maybe two or three generations to. It makes me feel like this country's like turned into a hotel or a truck stop. Like instead of being a country where people come to buy into, people can choose to physically live here but their hearts and minds could be somewhere else across the pond. And that's resulted in instances where citizens have actually gone back home to fight in wars, like in um, Croatia or in Somalia. Like it creates radicalism. There's evidence that this, that this, is what, this is what happens. Like I don't think she'll go overseas to fight in a war, but if her heart's over there, why doesn't she live there? Why does she, why do, you know, she didn't mention anything about Canada or its, its national symbols or history or what, what makes this a great country. She constantly bragged about how great India was. You know, and there's one rape every 20 minutes in India and one act of violence every two minutes against a woman. So if it's such a great country, obviously she knows the other part of it, the, the other side of it. Why isn't she mentioning, you know, how come these things are absent in Canada? Well, maybe our culture is better than theirs. If it wasn't, why would she come here? Well, one thing, you mentioned truck stop, and I once went to a truck stop near mm -hmm. Quebec City mm -hmm. where I got a fantastic steak dinner. Where? at a truck stop just outside of Quebec City. Was it a well-done steak? or? I like my steak. You know, at the time, I, I mm -hmm. liked it rare, but now I like my steak a little more well-done, kind of like medium, medium well. Am I missing the point? I guess I am. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, I've got two more articles. i got three more articles to read, but I, I think I only have time to read can, two of them. Can we just, instead of reading them, can we just make the point, uh, Sean? All right, well, I'll, I'll just go to the last one, because you remember the, uh, the turban issue you guys mentioned? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Uh, by the way, does this mean I can't work for the Quebec government because of my hat? I think, I think it would be banned according to the, the rules. Exactly. See, see, that's why I've let, got some trouble. Let, let's deal with that issue if they, if they would ever hire you. And, oh, I guess you'd have, I don't know. 
if you if your if your application would ever pass the pre-screening process. Listen, I would get a, I would love to work for the they, government just for yeah. the they give you a free briefcase. They kicked an employee off one of my job sites. They they basically told them that they didn't tell him they didn't want him back, but they said to the the client told the the, the manager from the security company where he goes, we don't want this guy coming back. And I overheard the conversation in the office when I was walking what, to the you? washroom. No, I wasn't kicked off, but he was—he grew a beard like down to here. Yeah. And the client wanted people clean shaven, and he right. goes, "I told you, I told you when, in the beginning, this is the kind of employee yeah. we want." Yeah. So if someone's paying money for a service and they want someone to have to look a certain way for, you know, employment purposes, you're gonna have to make changes. And if you don't want to make the change, don't work for that. Don't work for that organization. Okay. You All know? right, Sean. So let's get to the uh, the turban issue okay. here. Yeah, that was brought up. Um, it's, it's amazing that this article was written in the South Asian Times on June 20th, 2013 in Society. It's called The Turban as a Soccer Hazard by Bilal Sarwar. Oh, that was a big issue. He said, I completely, he goes, I completely agree. Although it may be a betrayal of my South Asian brothers, I feel it's important that everyone finally know the big secret. Seemingly made of cloth, the turban is actually composed of a rare titanium alloy known as Punjabium, not to be confused with artist Punjabium C. In India, the metal is used to create bullets so powerful they can literally shoot through the core of the earth. These bullets or balls can thankfully only be fired by very rare guns made of Kevlar, Diamond, 50 Cent, and Jack Bauer. If a turban were to, um, he would instantly shatter into a thousand pieces. I'm not necessarily sure if the, if the turban were to come undone during a soccer match and a player would ac accidentally make contact with it. Uh, he would instantly shatter into a thousand pieces. I'm not necessarily sure if the QFC believes the turban possesses the capabilities outlined above. However, they must know something we do not, or else would they be the only Canadian province to ban the turban on the pitch? Mm -hmm. And it's become a political hot potato in Quebec. You know, because if you, the ball hits the turban and the thing's tied so tightly around the player's head, yeah. the Kevlar could push into the, the skull of the player and kill them, cause hemorrhaging, cause bleeding. Mm. So that's, that's what they're concerned about. I guess we're going to have to wait until that happens because based on our PC society, we're too afraid to, to you know, say, okay, we have certain standards for safety, mm -hmm. so we don't want to you know, make these people feel bad, so let's just let them play soccer until one of them possibly does get either hurt or killed or sent to the hospital. Then, then we'll come out and say, oh, we didn't know that was going to happen. Sean, I haven't met you before, so I'm just asking, uh, are you involved in politics? Or? I read a lot of history books. Like I've read books on Pierre Trudeau, Stephen Harper, a lot of books on the history of Canada. Mm -hmm. I read a lot of uh, ethnic newspapers. Mm -hmm. I use it for my research. Mm -hmm. So I guess I am uh, in, a, uh, in a way, I'm writing a book about our lack of identity. So I do have quite a few books about the, those topics. Mm. So in that way, yes, yes I am. Okay. Okay. Do well, you, Sean? Huh? Have you ever read books on politics or history? Or? No, no, I tend to be, uh, no. You're missing out. They're amazing. Some really well, good books. Everybody's well, got their you, own path. You know, it, 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 it's just a very interesting thing. Uh, uh, party politics and politics in general, it's not, uh, it's, it's not been an issue that has attracted me a lot. Uh, it's hard to deal with. Even though like I know it's, uh, it's important to us uh, as a society, the society has to be organized somehow uh, for it to run effectively. But in general, I've thought for a long time that party politics are 
kind of over. I wish Canadians and, were more involved in politics. We're very yeah. shy people. We, we tend to think that it's rude or inappropriate to talk about politics. Like, I talk about politics on the buses and subways. I, the reason I asked you the question was because uh, you, you seem to have very, uh, you know, pronounced views, and I was wondering if you did anything about them. But, so it seems you're writing uh, a book. We also started the Canadian Cultural Society which is dedicated to promoting Canadian culture and history. Mm. And um, it's a pilot project, mm -hmm. so I don't know. But if do, you, do, you, uh, do you like the Canada we're in today, which uh, includes a lot of different nationalities and what they bring to the table? I can't say I do. I, I, I think it's also the government's fault and the school system's fault for encouraging people to be bad citizens because some of, the, some of the things they bring to the table are inappropriate and unappealing. It's global elites, Sean, we know. I, I, like, them. I like the different nations here. <laughs> I do. You mean citizens? Nations are actually countries, yeah, different, right? Different, uh, yes, nationalities. I, I yeah. like it too. I like it too, but I think... I, I understand what you're saying on some points. It's a balance. But it's, it's a balance. It's always, I, think, I think there's a lot of growing pains going on all over the world. This is relatively new in our human history that that many people have been able to transmigrate, yeah. you know, into oh, other oh yeah. countries. What it, what it did with uh, Europe, like Germany, France, the United Kingdom and Holland have been experimenting with multicultural ideology for a couple decades. Mm -hmm. They just pulled the plug on it. They all got together and they said mm -hmm. it encourages people to behave in ways we're encountered to our values. Um, Angela Merkel said it utterly failed. Piet Donner of Holland said we're going to shift the, you know, we're, we're going to move away from the multicultural society back to the values of the Dutch people, like the Dutch language, the Dutch way of life. And this may all be so. Mm -hmm. I just don't think uh, it's an alarmist kind of situation. I, I would pr personally see it more as a growing pain. Well, I think it's a transition from yeah, it's a uh, transitional socially stage. engineered socialism insanity back to mm -hmm. something more familiar mm -hmm. that we had before, before the socially engineered insanity. Because we went through kind of like a hippie era for the last mm -hmm. three decades. We we're like, oh, we're not really citizens of Canada. We're global citizens. Mm -hmm. Or we're, we're going to promote diversity and tolerance instead of acceptance and uh, things like, you know, commonality. Mm -hmm. I mean, we pay a price for promoting the other. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's a pretty high price. Like, citizens have no idea about the history of the country. Mm -hmm. Citizens are, you know, killing their kids in honor killings. Or beating, you know, women are being beaten in the house. Yeah. And they think it's normal because we say we have a multicultural society. You can't blame them for behaving that way. But no. when they get charged, yeah. obviously, like, some of the things they're doing are illegal. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're, we're just making bad citizens. Like, we don't have any standards anymore. Like, no one knows who they are. There's no sense of Canadianness, yeah. and if it does exist, we're now making fun of ourselves in record numbers. Like I talk to people on the subway and bus, and yeah. oh, we're wimpy and we're too weak. Like this is a shared sense of um, view from a lot mm -hmm. of the silent majority that mm -hmm. I end up talking to. I talk to hundreds of people on the mm -hmm. subway about this. Mm -hmm. The majority of people now just make fun of themselves, like, mm -hmm. oh yeah, we're such wimpy Canadians, or yeah, don't even bother sharing our history. Who cares? Mm -hmm. And you know. They really, they really feel anxiety about these things. They really care about mm -hmm. the fact that you know good things aren't happening, that we're not sharing the yeah. history with people. And we, values are definitely important. Absolutely, yeah. you values. know, values give our society a high degree of quality. If we don't mm -hmm. promote and, and uphold those values, it'll just, we'll just start going mm -hmm. slide, we'll slide backwards into mm -hmm. tribalism. Mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to the rewilding of Ontario. What the wolves and stuff moving in, and they're just you know move the people into giant skyscrapers in tiny cities. Well, we lead we lead the world in condos, so <clears throat> it's just crazy how we're just building all these condos. They're even replacing the um, no frills and Sherbet and Bloor and all those little businesses with uh, condo developments or, or townhouses or something like. They're just you know those those places employed people.
We give people a, a way of life and a way for them to pay their rent and put food on the table. We won't need jobs in the future, though, Sean. Yeah, we don't. We don't, Hugh. We don't need jobs. <laughs> okay, Sean, thanks for coming in today. Always uh, stimulating discussion. And Rose, thank you for coming in thank at the you, last Hugh. minute and being a fabulous co-host for what was a fabulous show, a really awesome show with some great guests today. We really had a lot of great guests. I'm so glad I was able to make it in, and thank you for asking. Okay, great. Thanks for coming Anytime. on the show, Rose. appreciate Thanks. it. Thanks, Thanks for sharing. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Sean, and uh, before we go, Sean, where can people get in touch with you? They want to follow um, up? Yeah, they, they can. Um, right now, I don't have um, either research site up because they're both being worked on. So my contact information is on the other debates that we've done. Um, the debate we did with um, Ricardo Duchesne, Cultural Marxism in Canadian Society, and Canada's Broken Mosaic, The Literary Critics of Multiculturalism, Part 1 to 4, were the four debates that we did before that. If people watch those videos, my, my contact information okay. will be at the end of those videos. Fabulous. So. Okay, we're going to go with this video, that, Sean, that you gave to us. And, uh, and uh, thanks again, and we'll see you all next time right here on thatchannel.com. See you then. Auparavant, une autre question Internet. Parmi les internautes qui, euh, par centaines, se sont adressés sur le site de TF1, indépendamment des thèmes que nous avons abordés ce soir, on en a vu un tout à l'heure, il y en a un autre difficile maintenant. Je vous pose la question, il est lié à l'immigration. Je vous lis la question. Ne trouvez-vous pas, Monsieur le Président, que le multiculturalisme est un échec et qu'il est à l'origine de bien des problèmes de notre société Question liée sans doute au débat qui a eu lieu en Allemagne. C'est ce qu'a dit... Angela Merkel, c'est un échec. C'est ce qu'a dit la semaine dernière David Cameron euh, en Grande-Bretagne. Qu'en pensez-vous pour la France Oui, ma réponse est clairement oui, c'est un échec. La vérité, c'est que dans toutes nos démocraties, on s'est trop préoccupé de l'identité de celui qui arrivait et pas assez de l'identité du pays qui accueillait. Je, je, je m'explique par là. Bien sûr qu'il faut respecter chacun dans ses différences. C'est tout à fait normal. Mais nous ne voulons pas, en tout cas ce n'est pas le projet de la France, une société où les communautés coexistent les unes à côté des autres. Si on vient en France, on accepte de se fondre dans une seule communauté qui est la communauté nationale. Et si on ne veut pas accepter ça, on ne peut pas être le bienvenu en France. Les pays comme l'Angleterre ou les États-Unis, qui ont pensé développer ce multiculturalitarisme, c'est-à-dire communauté par communauté, ont renforcé les extrémistes, chacun oubliant qu'il appartenait à une communauté nationale, à développer ses défenses contre les autres. Nous ne voulons pas de cela. Nous ne voulons pas de cela. Voilà. Et les choses sont parfaitement claires. Je, je, je suis de l'avis de Mme Merkel et de M. Cameron. Nous ne pouvons pas de cela. Alors, ça pose la question, bien sûr, qui, qui vient... De, et ne, et ne, 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 ne faisons pas la langue de bois. Ça pose la question de l'islam et de nos compatriotes musulmans. C est, c est, c est, elle, elle est posée. Et refuser d'évoquer cela au prétexte que des extrémistes de tous les côtés peuvent s'en emparer, c'est une erreur.
on ne résout pas les problèmes en refusant d'en parler. Il y a clairement posé un problème. Ma position est la suivante. Nos compatriotes musulmans doivent pouvoir vivre, pratiquer leur religion, comme n'importe quel de nos compatriotes, juifs, protestants, catholiques, mais il ne peut s'agir que d'un islam de France et non pas d'un islam en France. Ça, c'est pas possible. C'est ce qui m'a amené à faire voter la loi portant interdiction de la burqa. Nous ne voulons pas, en France, de femmes qui portent un voile intégral. Nous n'en voulons pas. Nous ne voulons pas, en France, que l'on prie de façon ostentatoire dans la rue. Mais nous disons en France qu'il est parfaitement normal qu'il y ait des lieux de culte, des mosquées, pour que nos compatriotes musulmans puissent pratiquer leur foi. Nous sommes un pays laïque. Il y a une séparation entre les religions et l'État. La prière n'offense personne. Mais nous ne voulons pas, sur le territoire de la République française, d'un prosélytisme religieux agressif. Quel voilà. qu'il soit. Quel qu mais naturellement, quel qu'il soit. Naturellement, quel qu'il soit. Mais M. Pernaud, euh, je pense qu'il y a une formidable hypocrisie de refuser de voir un certain nombre de réalités en face. Je le dis alors même que j'ai toujours été opposé à l'immigration zéro, qui n'a aucun sens, alors même que je trouve que les déclarations de tel ou tel leader extrémiste parfois font honte, et je le dis alors que chef de l'État, je le suis de nos compatriotes, quelle que soit leur confession, qu'ils aient une confession ou qu'ils n'en aient pas d'ailleurs, qu'ils aient une confession ou qu'ils n'en aient pas. Mais si on vient en France, on apporte bien sûr son identité à la communauté nationale, mais on respecte la communauté nationale. Et la communauté nationale française ne veut pas changer, comment Son mode de vie, son style de vie, l'égalité entre les hommes et les femmes. Nous, nous, nous ne voulons pas transiger là-dessus. La liberté pour les petites filles d'aller à l'école. Le, 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 le... nous, nous ne voulons pas, par exemple, que des imams puissent prêcher la violence. Nous ne le voulons pas. Nous ne le voulons pas. Voilà, ça, ça, ça n'existe pas. Nous ne voulons pas modifier le calendrier, nous, 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 nous considérons que la religion, et c'est éminemment respectable, mais ça fait partie du domaine privé, ça ne fait pas partie du domaine public. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.